This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorne. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show investigative journalist Emily Kaplan. 
Now, Emily has spent her entire career investigating health-related topics and most recently has begun working with CrossFit founder Greg Glassman and helping him write his book. Now, there were so many things I wanted to ask Emily that we literally stopped halfway and then recorded a second part. Usually, I'll make each guest a single episode, but we had so much to talk about, I ended up actually splitting this into two. So in this first part, we covered a host of topics from research and women through to the cancel culture and CrossFit and everything in between. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Emily Kaplan. Enjoy. Well, Emily, I want to start by saying thank you so much for carving out some time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I am right outside of Boston where we are getting a snowstorm. So you might be able to see behind me. There's huge snowflakes coming down, which is actually kind of nice because it's been a dreary winter with not much snow. Beautiful. Yeah, I've got, um, it's cool out here in Florida, but it's still blue skies. So there's no no snowflakes here, apart from maybe some walking around in town. Blue sky. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> All right. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, so I was born outside of Boston. Um, and I'm one of four kids. My brother has died, but I there were four of us. Um, my dad has a really interesting sort of career trajectory where he was an engineer, has a couple advanced degrees in engineering, went to Harvard Business School, was in Vietnam in the Navy. Um, I was conceived in Iran or Afghanistan. So 77, that gives you an idea of some of the, you know, sort of interesting life that my parents have led. They're wonderful pictures of my older sister as a little girl in Iran with everybody covered in shadors and she's running around in this like big floral dress. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to blend in. <laughs> cool picture. Um, and then he had a, my dad had a consulting business. He was on the board of a lot of different companies. He worked on the LEM on the space shuttle. And I think, you know, I could go into all of his cool accomplishments, but I think the biggest takeaway in some ways in terms of the family dynamic impact is that, um, he really taught me that life is about solving problems. And he was different than a lot of the other dads that I grew up with who were really like worked for one company or were doctors. I think he would follow his interests. So he was a photographer. Um, you know, he's retired now, but he started painting. And he, I think, has always sort of been like, when you feel like you're getting bored, it's time to move on. And so that really encouraged me um, to sort of, follow a similar path without realizing it. So I've sort of oscillated between investigative journalism and 
launching startup companies um, and selling them or running them or turning them over to other people or whatever. And I think I probably, a lot of times people are like, I don't know how you do that, where you go from one thing to the other and, you know, you're not nervous. And I'm like, what's well, I'm fueled by excitement, <laughs> you know, and there's nerves involved in that. But I think that's really following his lead. And my mom was really a stay-at-home mom for a while. Um, she has a master's in special ed, so she had taught deaf and blind kids. And then when my younger sister was in middle school, she started working at a school for kids who are dyslexic um, and really like sort of took the reins with that. So we always used to joke like, you're a teacher, but you don't get summers off. And she's like, well, I'm supposed to have the summer off, but there's just too much to do to help these kids. So she's also somebody who is just endlessly curious. Um, she's sort of like a word etymologist, like she is obsessed with the roots of words and the stories that they tell um, and was just like a phenomenal mom in terms of encouraging us. And I think there were three girls in the family and like we were all told that we could just sort of do whatever we wanted, that it wasn't, you know, no one ever told us that we weren't going to be able to accomplish things or um, I mean, I think there was a high bar set for all of us. And then I think the other family dynamic is my older sister is a famous art historian and um, and she was, I like to joke that she was like, she was born a wild genius who could like read and give speeches and do all these great things. So I was born number two. And I think, um, you know, in some ways not a failure, but I was never going to be that level of sort of academic success. And I think it actually gave me, you know, that sort of risk-taking ability to look at things and say, you know what, I'm going to be okay. I can fall down and get back up probably was because of that sort of birth order and the example that she set that I knew I wasn't going to live up to in the same way. So like my mom would force me to come inside and read for 20 minutes a day. And she'd force my sister to go outside and play for 20 minutes a day. Right. So like we couldn't have been more opposite and we're very close um, now, but it's sort of interesting to look at those dynamics, right. And how they kind of play out in different ways. And I think because she was hugely successful at things, she's less um, she's more risk adverse than I am. And I think that has to have played out in some way because of the fact that I was sort of like, oh, well, I'm not going to be number one. So why not just go for it? <laughs> Give it a try. Well, you so. said you're close now. When when you were young, was that the same case? Because my, my uh, younger brother, not my youngest, but my younger, he... We and he and I were chalk and cheese. I was always like, you know, swinging from trees and and doing crazy stuff. And he was very academic and would take an engine apart and rebuild it. And we clashed heads so bad when we were younger, but we're we're very close now. So, what was that um, difference in polarity like when you were children? Oh, totally. I mean, I think she used to call me names or words that I didn't know what they meant, and I would beat her up, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> Sounds very similar. Um, but I think, you know, really, it was probably like when, I don't know if it was even high school, we were four grades apart. And so I'm sure by the time that she went to college, we really missed each other. I mean, I think whenever one of us would get in trouble with my parents, even if it was because of, you know, hurting the other, we would become aligned against my parents. So I think that was always true. Um, but the really like missing each other and becoming friends probably happened later when we had some distance from each other and we realized how much we missed each other. And I think, you know, she's one of my favorite, like the broken science stuff that we're doing. I've talked to her a lot about that. Um, and she just has really great insights on all kinds of things. And, you know, I think we both want to be helpful to each other at this stage of life. Um, and even though, you know, people often get together and they're like, you guys could not be more different, but I don't feel that way. I feel like we're really 
very similar in some ways. And, um, you know, certainly have this long history of being able to really be ourselves in, in quite different ways and not seeing that as anything negative. Did you lose your brother when you were young or was it when he was an adult? As an adult. And yeah. if you don't mind me asking, because we're going to get into obviously health and, and that kind of arena, what was it that took his life? Yeah, uh, he killed himself. Okay, so. so the mental health crisis that we're in, he was a victim of it too. Definitely, yeah. Which is part of the reason that that's so close to home. I mean, I think I, you know, have been very interested in the fentanyl stuff and the, you know, sort of influence that people are saying of, you know, China bringing the fentanyl up from Mexico. Um, but I also think, you know, in terms of this idea of any kind of national threat if you say that like the number one cause of death for men who are 18 to like 40 is suicide and number two is overdose you're directly targeting the age population and the gender that we would call on to protect us and i see that as a very clear national threat um when you put those things in close proximity to each other and i just think you know it's it's tragic right it's 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 so hard to wrap your head around but it's also one of these things where when you look at it on a sort of like population level it's so easy to identify that we have this problem whereas in an isolated case i think people feel you know stigma or embarrassment or let down you know that i didn't do enough so it's very hard to talk about the individual case but um when you look at it as a systemic issue it becomes something that you should you know we should all be paying much more attention to and I think, you know, we talk a lot about it. I don't know that there's really great solutions. There's somebody who I've become friends with through the CrossFit sort of community, Dale King, who would be a great guest for you to talk to. Um, he was uh, in the army, came home to his small town in Portsmouth, Ohio, and found that it had been turned. I mean, it really, he learned later, it became, it was the pill mill capital of the country. Dreamland. Um, yeah, exactly. And the whole town was decimated. And I think, you know, Dale's super smart and, you know, had a great career in the military, could have gone on and done lots of different things, but decided that he had to stay put and help fix the town. And one of the things that he's, you know, articulated, which is so logical, is that you can't help people if you don't give them jobs, right? So, like, you can go through rehab and you can do all this stuff, but if you don't have a community and you don't have a job, like, what what's your sense of purpose? And I'm a big believer that sense of purpose is really what makes people happy or not. That, you know, you could be rich, poor, whatever, but you will be miserable if you don't have a sense of purpose. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's a job or a family or whatever. It doesn't have to be some, you know, very specific thing, but something that calls to you and wakes you up in the morning and makes you excited about your day. And I think when people have gone through drug addiction and they've lost their job and their town used to be a, you know, industrialized powerhouse and now it's nothing, you got to fix that underlying problem, which is probably economic, right? And in some ways. Um, and so, you know, he opened a CrossFit box and he's now opened a bunch of different businesses. So he has this skincare line that's phenomenal. They have like a body scrub that I'm obsessed with, <laughs> but it's all made for, I mean, it's made by recovering addicts. And so he's partnered with a local rehab center. And as soon as people get out of that, they come and they work at CrossFit, they work out at CrossFit. And if they, you know, can kind of sustain themselves, they get jobs, right? And I mean, he's just starting new businesses left, right, and center in order to find more employment for people in his town. And it's like, that's, that is, that's actually a solution, right? And it's not, um, you know, sending people money 
and expecting that their mental health is going to improve. It's saying to them like, hey, if you want to get better, we're going to give you opportunity that will hopefully help you on that path. But this is your work and you got to show up, right? And you got to do these things. Um, A couple Christmases ago, he posted something on like Instagram about how he was trying to get car seats for moms. And I said to him like, what, like, what are you doing now? Right? Like, what is this all about? And he's like, well, you know, there's all these moms who have been through rehab or, you know, lost their driver's license or whatever and lost their kids. They can't get their kids back until they can show that they can drive them safely. Car seats are expensive. So they can't, they're, they're in recovery. They're great. They're ready to have their kids back, but they can't get them back because of this sort of stupid requirement that you have to have a car seat. And so Greg, who, you know, is so generous, um, was like, buy him car seats. And so I was like, Dale, I'm going to buy you a bunch of car seats. How many do you need? And he's like, oh, I don't know, like five, 10. I was like, how many do you need? We sent him like 25 car seats. And it was amazing. It was like they, he had sent us this video of like all these moms, like, you know, bringing the car seats up this flight of stairs, just as like an assembly line. And it still makes me like almost want to cry because it's like, you know, those are things that we can all think about. Right. And that I think the model he's creating in some ways is, is you could replicate that in really any medium sized town, right? Where you're really trying to find a way of employing people and giving them a sense of purpose and a community so that they can continue to heal and provide more for the community. It's a it's such a win-win. So yeah, I'm definitely interested in those kinds of, you know, I don't know if we'd even call them social causes. Like, I don't know what, what to classify that is. I think massive problem in our country today. Yeah. Well, firstly, I mean, thank you for for sharing that. But this is the problem. That momentary awkwardness is still there with, you know, oh, it was cancer. Well, that's that that rolls off the tongue, you know. But when it comes to overdose or suicide, there's still that kind of um, shame element. And I see that every time it just happens over and over and over again when we lose a firefighter or, you know, a, a first responder of some sort, which is usually the radar that I'm, you know, looking at. Oh, they died suddenly. They died in their sleep you know, has passed all these terms. Oh, okay. So was it suicide or overdose? But the more that we kind of sweep it under the the rug, as you said, the less exposure this is getting. And it drives me crazy because I can Google transgender athlete and there'll be a fucking million articles on that. But the crisis is actually killing our people, you know, the addiction and overdose and suicide and even deaths on the road, which is you ask any first responder, that's most of the death that we've seen. I've I've lived in this country 20 years. I've never heard anyone say, maybe we should make the driving test harder. Maybe we should raise the requirements before we let someone be behind the wheel of a death machine. Because when we look mm-hmm. at the roads, no one uses their fucking blinker. No one keeps from the car in front. No one slows down in the rain. No one seems to understand the whys behind the driving. And we just... 40,000 Americans every year die. So what is that as far as who survive with injuries? Probably, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But, you know, that's okay. But God forbid a virus comes through and we'll shut the fucking world down. Right. Yeah, no. So when you start looking at it like that, from my perspective, a lot of this becomes clearly distraction, right? We're being distracted from the real problems. And it's easy to get distracted today because there's so much coming at you in terms of information that you feel like you're informed, right? But you're not. You're getting. You're really being misled about what's what's critical to understand. What are problems we can solve? What are efforts every person can do? Low hanging fruit, right? Um, and I. That's that's an. It's an interesting time that we're living through, where we we have access to more information than we've ever had before, and it's like our brains can't quite process it completely, right? And I think 
Um, you know, I say to Greg a lot, some of the stuff that we're doing with the Broken Science Initiative is focused on science because we think science is really the empirical branch of knowledge. But if it's effective, it will actually change the way people think and it will make people more critical of everything. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the basis of what we're trying to do is really about probability theory. I mean, in medicine, you look at how studies aren't able to replicate and you ask why. And it's like, well, they're not being done because there's actually no expectation that they're going to be able to replicate. When you look at the sort of statistical tools that are being used, they're not tools of, of validation. And whereas, you know, we're all okay with probability. And it sounds overwhelming to talk about probability theory, which does get into, you know, some serious math territory. But also, like, I was t- trying to explain some of these concepts to a friend of mine. And I was saying to her, you know, it's really just like, who are your friends with? And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I have prior knowledge about somebody and I can use that to make decisions and judgments about whether I want to be friends with you or not. And then we can be friends and I'm going to reevaluate, right? As we go through more experiences together, as things get hard or they're fun, like, are we, are you still loyal? Can I still trust you? Are you honest? Right? Like, what are the values that I have in friendship that you're upholding and how am I feeling when I'm with you in this relationship and am I living up to the values that I believe in too that's all probability theory right that's all taking prior information putting it in making a hypothesis about it and then sort of like reevaluating and having some like posterior kinds of calculations that you're doing as new information comes to light like that's why would we not be doing that in every aspect of our lives I don't want to you know, give up my individual rights because somebody tells me that they know better. I want to trust that you know more. And then I'm totally fine. I mean, I think this, in some ways, when, you know, we talk about cancel culture kind of stuff too, this comes up, right? Where it's like everybody jumping on a bandwagon about somebody or something that they actually know about is fascinating, right? Because it's 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 not logical. You should be able to say, I know this person or I know them in these days. And therefore what you're saying about them doesn't add up to me. Right. Or I really like them. You know, they're really funny. They're a comedian. And I kind of thought that was a joke and I'm sorry that you were offended, but like, I still thought it was funny. Right. And I think what's interesting is that because the fear takes over, just like with COVID, that ability to rationally think starts to be stripped away. And I think people start to fear for themselves. And it's not fear that I'm going to die of COVID necessarily, although there were far more people who thought that than I could would have ever predicted. Um, or it's not even fear that like, oh, this person is being called a rapist and I'm alone with them and now I'm worried I'm going to be raped. It's a fear of self-preservation, right? It's a fear that, oh gosh, if I stand up for this person, I'm going to be canceled, right? Or people aren't going to like me, or I'm not going to be invited to the party, or, you know, there's a whole spectrum on which this falls. And that's disgusting to me. I mean, that really bothers me because I feel like in the moments of, um, you know, crisis or trouble or anguish, right? Like pain, that's when you need people to be there for you. And it's so disappointing to see so many people not have that level of integrity, Um you know, in a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, we can certainly talk about Greg's cancellation, but I, I would also add that like the, there's a lot of other people that I've helped through my little firm and it's, it's devastating to them when this stuff happens. And yet the pattern is so clear to me now having helped different people and the way this is being weaponized by large corporations or even the U S government, right. With a lot of the censorship stuff, it's, it's tapping right into our sort of fear part of our brain 
and manipulating it to the advantage of a private interest. And that we really need to do a better job calling out because I think people will be more likely to stand up for their friends or, you know, people that they admire or just not get involved. I mean, this is like, it becomes a tidal wave, right? So like, if you're just like, yeah, I don't really have enough information. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait. None of these things that, you know, all the gas would be taken out of the engine. Like it just, it wouldn't go anywhere. Um, And I think we, you know, that's critical thinking. And it's also the ability to say to people, yeah, I'm not really ready to comment on that yet. I don't really know that. How do you know that? You know that for sure? How? You've always, I mean, like with Greg, it's like, you know, there are certain people that would, you know, had him on their podcast more than any other guest. You had somebody on your podcast more than any other guest who was a racist, who was, you know, mean to women and you're a woman. Like, you better explain that. Right. It's not just like cancel him. It's also like, maybe you have some responsibility here. If that's true. That's very interesting to me because I think it has to do with um, human psychology and how people are using all of this information that we have access to in ways that our brain isn't quite ready for yet. I mean, I think, you know, because my dad was in Vietnam, I had a lot of understanding or education at a young age that the media got that wrong, that, you know, he really felt like, and he has just read this book, which I introduced him to the author, which was a lot of fun through people at Hillsdale that we know. Um, But he was pretty emotional about the fact that this was, this book was the first, and I'll have to look up the name for you. um, The first account he had ever read that, even slightly resembled what his experience was there. And he had said, you know, he had a flag that was the Viet Cong flag and he was in parts of, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to get in trouble, but like parts of Cambodia and stuff where like we weren't really supposed to be right. And doing stuff. And he said, you know, the media kept reporting that the Viet Cong was this, you know, indigenous group who like wasn't violent or whatever. And he was like, that is not what I saw. Right. Like they were very well organized they had their own systems like this. It was so wild to come home for him and hear how things were being reported that didn't resemble anything near what his experience was. And I think Vietnam was interesting because it was sort of a first time that we had a war where people could see it. Right. And I think our brains aren't very good at that. I think we see something and we pick up on something and we think it's factual and it's factual in the representation. Like, I don't think people were distorting the images back then. They are now, right? But I think there is something really powerful about seeing an image. And I think we're empathetic beings, right? So you see a child or you see a village on fire and you don't, you just believe the context that's given with that without questioning it the way that you might not if you read it in a story. I, and I think that has to do with our cognitive reception about images and and now I think it's pervasive and I think it's, you know, full test from where it was then. And I think that there was an impetus that at that point about controlling the narrative through video and images that has that was successful, that has taken on a whole new life now that, you know, you see with kids. I mean, this is a maybe inappropriate but funny story where my son is 11 and I was driving him and a friend home from a game the other day. And they got into this conversation and basically they had heard that if you are in Iceland and your penis is less than two inches, you are not allowed to get married. That's true. I know I I follow those same rules myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I, you know, I like to be quiet when I'm driving the kids in the car because I hear, I learn a lot more than when I interject myself. 
But I, in that moment, I was like, guys, how does that work? And they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, someone is going around and measuring people's penises to make sure they're two inches long or longer. And is it in the winter or the summer that they're measuring? Because that make a I big mean, difference I mean, there's too. all kinds of questions <laughs> that I would like to know, right? And I'm not saying that women would be opposed to that law, but I just think like it's unlikely that this is happening the way you guys are talking about it. And it was funny because it was like they were kind of stumped. Like, you're right. Well, how would that happen? And I was like, you know, if somebody asks to look at your private parts, you say no, right? Even if they say they're from the government. Like, where is this? Co- what is this, right? And they both got kind of irritated. And they were like, it was, I saw it on YouTube. And the other kid was like, oh, well, I also saw it. I saw. I think I saw it somewhere on, on the internet. And I was like, that does not mean it's true. <laughs> and I, you know, it's really hard with kids to try and talk to them about how to sess up what's right and what's wrong. And I don't, I mean, even grownups, like I think we saw this a lot in COVID. I don't think grownups really know that. And I think hopefully with broken science stuff, we'll be able to sort of explain, give some tools and education so that people at least know enough to say like, huh, I'm not sure that's exactly the way that you're putting it. And, you know, that will be hugely successful. I'm sure that we'll both get hung in the town square for doing it, but I think it's gonna be it'll be worthwhile. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely needed right now, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was firstly, I was there's no other way really to describe it, just disappointed to see how easily people were divided the last couple of years. But um circling back to what Dale's doing in Portsmouth for a second. This kind of underlines the same issue. Um, people who listen to the podcast a lot have heard the story, but I think it needs to be repeated until everyone really understands it. When about 20 years ago, my mom and then my brother moved to Portugal. When I started this podcast about a year or so in, my mom said, hey, did you know what they did with drugs here? And I said, no. And Portugal was almost kind of looked down at by a lot of Europe as being almost like second world. Um, and what had happened, the Portuguese had been involved in some sort of conflict in I think it was the 70s in one of the, the the colonies in Africa and their soldiers had come back and that had really kind of initiated uh, a huge opioid crisis and at that point I as far as I understand they had one of the worst addiction rates in Europe or the world I keep meaning to, to look that up but it that was, was five it, years ago um no this this was when they were having the addiction was like 90s 80s and 90s I think okay, okay. um and then they had an an amazing initiative and you talk about entrepreneurial you know thinking and thinking outside the box where a group of them spearheaded by a gentleman named Zhao Gulao said what we're doing isn't working and it was the whole you know throw addicts in jail the the, the American model basically from the 1930s um, and so they put it to the country like hey we're thinking about doing something different we're going to treat addiction as a, as an illness rather than a crime so they was all done democratically. They had opposition from the right at first. And then after they, they began, it, the opposition went to support when they realized how it was working. But rather than arresting addicts, now this isn't smugglers, this isn't dealers. Those were then, you know, held almost um, with, a, with a greater force because now they had the manpower and the, the space in the judicial system to actually uh, attack those people. But addicts were brought in and given an interview, not even arrested just educated on the fact that they have um, the access to free counseling, addiction therapy, and job creation. So what you're talking about, Dale, yes. So then Mm. not only are you removing that, that kind of stigma and that fear of being arrested, 
all these addicts came from out the shadows. Was it perfect? Are there still addicts in or Portugal? Of course. But the mass, you know, the majority of these people sought help. And a huge part of this was the job creation. They would mm. sponsor employees to hire addicts. Now, you think about the way we do it. We arrest you. You have a criminal record. And actually, one of my friends that I had on the show is a gym owner in the UK. That history just caught up with him again and the gym he was about to open has just been shut down they, they wouldn't let oh. him have the building so this is the problem is we we create greater barriers for our addicts to get back on their feet so this portuguese model and i sat in lisbon and interviewed jao face to face and saw the facilities it was incredible but you talk about the messaging i've, I've asked so many people now in the u.s law enforcement and in the uk and australia and it's the same message they publicly they're they're still enforcing the laws that they're told they have to enforce but personally they're like the war on drugs is an epic failure epic, epic. failure and a huge money maker as well so this is one of the other things is you lost someone you love you know almost everyone that i know has lost someone they love to addiction to overdose we have this horrendous mental health crisis that forces our people into the shadows rather than a proactive model that has been proven to be work you know to work in Switzerland and Portugal and there's a couple other countries around the world but the messaging to the people is this is your brain on drugs drugs are you know if we legalize it oh that we did it in Colorado and it was an epic failure well no you didn't do it in Colorado you piecemealed it in Colorado you didn't do decriminalization so it again they they're using that fear and that misinformation to fight yeah. against the very mental health crisis solutions that other countries of the world have already figured out. It's interesting you say that because I think the thing that comes to mind immediately is um, sex workers, which I feel like they have done. They've started um, following a model more like that, where instead of arresting, you know, just the, the female prostitutes or sex work, I don't for, you know, I can't keep track of what we're supposed to be calling people anymore, but They've started, at least in Massachusetts, arresting the the customer. And the customer never really used to get in trouble at all, right? But I think the idea was if you cut off the market, right, then you're able to actually control this and there won't be as many customers. And then just by default, and so many of those women are trapped in that situation. It's not really by choice, like the whole pretty woman thing. I think we've, <laughs> we've done away with Thank God. Um, and that sounds similar. It sounds like this idea of going to really like, again, I mean, for me thinking about medicine and science too, it's like the, what's the root cause and you're not going to have any real impact just treating symptoms. And, um, and so I, yeah, I, I tend to just think like, again, there's some common sense to this, right? It's like treat people like humans, right. Rather than like savage animals. And maybe you'll be able to get through to them in a different way. I remember reading something a long time ago, and I'm reluctant to even bring this up because it's not fresh in my mind. But there was a study that was done looking at the effectiveness of interventions where you cut the person off. You know, you sort of say, like, this is your last chance and we love you, but we're never going to talk to you again. Versus going to the addict and saying to them, we really love you. This, we feel like you're dying. We don't want you to die. What can we do together? How can we better support you? And it was hands down profoundly different outcomes. And you think, well, I'm glad someone did a study like that. But we know that, right? You know that if somebody, I tell my kids all the time, like anger is just the ugly face of sadness. 
You can't really do much with anger, but you can do a lot with sadness. So if somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I'm really depressed, I'm hurting, or these things are, I don't know how to handle these things. When you ask them how you can care for them better, you can do something about that. If you go to them and make them more isolated, you think they're going to just magically be able to fix things? No, they need help. They need support. And if, if, if we're incapable of being compassionate, why should they ever trust that we really care about them, right? If you really care about somebody, it comes through. I mean, and I'm not blaming people who did interventions and lost loved ones because I think people really get to the end of their rope and do whatever they are told to do. Um, but I, I think there is a profound, I, just underscoring in life, and problem. It's far better to treat people with kindness, right? Than it is to treat them with anger or malice or, you know, some sort of harsh judgment about them. And I think the drawer, the war on drugs, that was it. It was all about shame and um, isolation, right? And I think that's part of all of this. I mean, I think the fentanyl thing is interesting because, you know, they're putting stuff in pills, right? That are, you know, it's not just heroin anymore. And so somebody might order something off of the internet thinking that it's, you know, some like Percocet or Adderall are the two, I think that are most common and they die. Right. And so like that, that, then that's, that becomes a different thing. That's not necessarily addiction, but I think the notion that we're all, you know, facing this world where you can order stuff off the internet, that is really something you should probably be talking to your doctor about is another level of this isolation. It's another level of people feeling alone and feeling like, oh, I can just go on the internet and that's my community. And it's it's profoundly sad. Yeah, if only there was some sort of like book that was written by someone who preached kindness and compassion. And, you know, maybe you went to buildings where you sang songs about kindness and compassion. If only there was that, then people would understand that forgiveness. Oh, wait a second, there is, it's called religion. I remember now. That's yeah. what blows my mind. People come out of these religious buildings and then act like complete assholes to their homeless, to their addicts, to their prostitutes, to, you know, name everyone. Even, even you know, the, the young kids that start turning to crime because, again, they're born into this turmoil that I would argue this horrendous, you know, prohibition of drugs has created. We didn't have gangs on the streets until alcohol prohibition. That was an epic failure. Got got shut down and Harry Anslinger, job justification, just turned around, did the same thing with drugs instead. And here we are. And I'm one of the many, many first responders that's pulled yellow sheets over so many children, victims of, you know, overdose and gang shootings and you know, all these things. So to have the audacity to walk out of a church, for example, or a synagogue or, you know, whatever your religious building is, and then look someone in the eye and say, you know, addicts are scum, homeless are scum, you know, then you clearly are not getting anything from this book that you hold so dear to your heart. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I did an investigation into, I was looking at ISIS recruitment and um, they had sort of switched from trying to target young men to targeting girls. And they kind of smart enough realized that if you get the girls, you get the boys, you know, the boys will just come. <laughs> but what was really interesting was I talked to this guy who was an expert and he was actually an expert in um, sort of like Aryan race skinhead stuff. And he's now a professor. And I was trying to find somebody who was sort of an academic who could explain some of the logic. And he was talking about that experience. And I realized, holy shit, these are the exact same recruiting tactics. And really the crux of it 
was sitting down with a kid or a young person and saying to them, I think you're great and holding their hand and saying, what are you interested in? Oh, you're interested in skateboarding. You should come to the skate park with us. And it, you know, so usually it was somebody who was like three or four years older. So they weren't like a grown up, and it wasn't weird. They were cool. Right. And there was this sort of connection factor and it kind of, I, you know, there was a lot of detail to that, but the overarching thing was identical. It was like they had the same playbook and it was all about compassion and it was about listening and it was about forming a connection and making the kid feel powerful. Right. And the idea that that's so easy to do is such an indication to me that it is so profoundly lacking in the way that we interact, not just probably with youth, but with everybody. And it's, again, this idea of really just being caring. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, as a kid, I can remember like talking to old people a lot and I don't know why that was. I've always loved older people, but like they listen to you, right? I mean, my husband's grandfather, I didn't have a grandfather, and he was a profoundly important person to me. So we broke up for a few years when we were dating. And I would still have lunch with his grandfather once a week because he was just too important to me to let go, right? And he was a flying tiger in World War II and had started a you know big business that did manufacturing for the government and um, the military and had just had like endless stories. He spoke with such authority on so many things, but he was one of the best listeners and he was so compassionate and he was so interested in like at our lunches, right? Like he'd have a martini and like, it was so fun. And I think, you know, that was probably, I had a lot of friends, right? But it was being able to talk to somebody who I really respected and who had lived this incredible life. And they, for some reason, were interested in me and that made me feel good, Right. Why are we so bad at that today that like predators know, right? They know that works. But the average person, I mean, I know people who are like, oh, anybody who talks to a kid in public, like is a weirdo. You should know you don't go up to children and talk to them. And I'm like, what? Like at the playground, I'm constantly like, hey, you know, not telling them not to do stuff, but like I'll joke around with kids. And I think that's bizarre. We had this funny situation where, um, you know, school had been shut down because of COVID. And then it must have been the summer after that. And my kids had designed this lemonade stand. And we went over to the bike path and they were selling lemonade and people were paying them twice what they were asking for. I mean, it was a whopping success, right? And they left. And I was like, you guys, that was awesome. You worked really hard. It was hot, right? You were out in the sun. Look at all the money you made. And they, both of them, their response to me was, you know what, mom, it was kind of fun to talk to strangers. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, we never get to talk to strangers. And people were so nice. And I said, well, yeah, people are nice. And they said, no, but like, even like strangers are nice. And I thought, whoa, like this is really important to pay attention to, right? Well, what did we say? Stranger danger. We put those two words together. Right. And like, statistically, there's like, you know, that's the last place you want your kids focusing. Yeah. In terms of you know, yeah, because most exactly. of the the predatorial actions happen from people that they know, not people they That's don't. Right. Know. So it, it doesn't even. There's not even real logic behind it. Well, what you talked about with the elderly as well. This is something I wrote a book a couple of years ago. It was like, you know, a positive thing for me that came out of COVID was I had the you know the space mentally to at least do that. But one of the observations I've made in the fire service um, 
we have what's called back to bed calls. And, you know, some people will grow and roll their eyes, but I found it such a, a, a beautiful moment because it was so easy for us. You know, for the, the crews that I worked on usually were all men. So we'd, you know, four men would walk in and you'd see this, this, you know, elderly man now just full of shame because the love of his life is lying on the floor and he just physically didn't have the strength to pick her up more often than not they'd sold themselves as well so we'd come in and this was outside the quote-unquote job description but we'd you know take him and help him shower off clean up get him some clean clothes and then put him into bed and that moment just four capable bodies were able to restore someone's dignity Mm. but more often than not you'd see some of the pictures on the wall and this is what i wrote about and it's so easy for us to call old people old people. You know, it's funny. I just saw something on online and it said it was some dude in a restaurant. I said, I helped this this elderly couple at the table and they were younger than me. I'm like, you fucker. These people aren't old. <laughs> but anyway, um, but yeah, so we discount. And you look at so many, you know, tribes and, and um, communities around the world. The elders are revered. And obviously, you've got to earn respect. You can't be a shitbag and just happen to be old. But we discount so many that, as you said, we're, we're military heroes and doctors and nurses and teachers and all these incredible professions. And rather than having the humility to learn from, you know, the ones that aren't entitled and, and you know, giving old people a bad name, but the, the real leaders that just happen to have aged we the moment you get to kind of 50 and you get some gray hair it's like all right well you're done you know just go to the villages in florida and wait to die you know and it's it's so it's so sad because we lose so much wisdom and then we get someone who becomes president who's completely senile and then we're like see old people it's like no that's just you choosing a very bad human being to be you know as we did you know the last time as well the orange dude you know, but th- we have so much wisdom that happens to be older, and I don't know what it is about our our generation, but we've just got such prejudice on age as well. I think I, I've thought a lot about this, and I think one of the most important things that we could all reflect on is how we have this expert world. Everybody's an expert. They haven't earned it necessarily. Maybe academically they have in some way, but they haven't necessarily contributed something profound. And we've replaced the expert culture. The wisdom culture has been replaced by the expert culture, right? So the wise older person who has lived long enough to see lots of waves of change and different things and also has the like gift of knowing they don't have much time left which I think really does hone someone's ability to communicate and know what's important. We've replaced them. We've silenced them. And we're turning to people who have, you know, lots of degrees or some other value system that doesn't seem to actually produce the same kind of advice. That's far easier to, you know, I would say corrupt in some way, like try corrupting an old vet. Good luck, right? Like they are, They'll be really tough about what their values are and why why you should know right and wrong and what's wrong with you if you don't, right? <laughs> Try talking to an academic tenured professor about right and wrong, you're gonna get a totally different thing. And I think that's real, that is an interesting switch. I think, you know, this may be the first I I've said this a hundred times through COVID. I think this is like the first time in history where um we are not listening to older people were infantilizing them. I mean, I think older people were, you know, we justified all these horrible things that we have now done to children. 
because of COVID. And we did it because we said the old people need us to. Now, all the older people in my life that I asked said like, fuck that. I don't want you taking any measures to protect me that are going to negatively impact my grandchildren, my you know future generations of this wonderful country that I have lived a long, fulfilling life in. Not one, right? So we didn't actually listen to them. They weren't saying to us, like, please lock down the schools and please make sure that you vaccinate all these kids for something that they don't get sick from, right? Like that did, that did, did not happen. But we use this sort of emotional way of arguing that was hugely manipulative to get everybody to comply with something um, that a very, you know, let's just say a small group of experts deemed necessary. And I think had we listened to the wise and the elderly, they would have said, well, wait a minute, I've lived a long, wonderful life. And I mean, maybe some of them would be selfish enough to say like, yeah, sure, shut the economy down. I don't care about inflation. I'm not going to be here in five years. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. I don't think so. Because I think there's something that comes when you get closer to death, right? And you've lived a long life. But you want to see other people you love have that experience too. And you don't want to take anything away from them. And this was the first time that we sort of used them as prioritizing them over the young. That's very interesting that everybody went along with that. I mean, everybody went along with, you know, giving up free speech and right to assembly. So I guess, you know, this shouldn't be far along, but it it surprised me. And, you know, I had a lot of interesting conversations with older elderly people about how that was being used. I mean, I had a, a awful conversation that I overheard between my two kids while they were locked out of school, where my son said to my daughter, you know, we're like little bombs. And she goes, well, what do you mean? And he goes, we can kill people without even realizing it or meaning to. And she was like, no, we can't. And he was like, yeah, that's why we're not allowed to go to school. And that's why we can't see anybody because we could walk by an old person and they could die. And I was like, I'm out. That is too much responsibility. But that is exactly what the storyline was that's exactly what they were told right by their schools by their parents by the the community by the same people that told them about the Icelandic penises exactly well right (laughs) and people that they actually knew and trusted (laughs) (laughs) now it was it was heartbreaking because think about the guilt and shame that you put onto children you know, and and it was completely unfounded. I want to kind of reverse engineer and get to your the genesis of your journalism and then we'll walk through and talk about that but you know, just it was so irresponsible because, like you said, any anyone who was in the middle of the road with the common sense and my whole, you know, circle is the wellness circle that was the wellness circle pre-COVID is still the wellness circle after COVID. But I pointed out this a lot. The messaging, aside from, hey, children, you're responsible for murdering your grandparents, was also, you know, let's close the beach, beaches and parks. You know, don't go outside. Don't you dare communicate or, you know, assemble with family and friends. You know, the the gyms are closed too, so don't exercise. But fast food and alcohol can be delivered to your house while you watch Tiger King. That was the message to how we're going to improve the physical and mental health and resilience of the United States, the UK, Australia, and all these other so-called developed countries. And so many people fell into it and what was so crazy is watching the uk finally when that christmas party happened they pushed back and we're like wait a second you've been telling us this now you fuckers are out having a a party and it and it took that moment for a a true awakening to happen and all of a sudden overnight covid was gone 
But that was what was so disappointing and heartbreaking is the people that understood understood basic wellness and the tenets of wellness, sleep, sunshine, community, time in nature, were standing going, what the fuck is going on here? But the the divisiveness was so ingrained by that point that it was like World War One. We're at the Flanders fields watching two trenches full of people trying to murder each other. I think that's that's correct. I mean, absolutely. I agree with all of that. And I think the autopsy on that has not been done. I don't think people are even at this stage willing to reflect on um, how they played a part in that. I mean, just as an average citizen, not standing up and saying, whoa, 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 this, this doesn't seem quite right. Um, we live in a neighborhood that's sort of halfway turned over. So there's still some older people and then there's some younger families. And I work a ton. So I had made the grave error of not canceling our toilet paper subscription with Amazon delivery for like two years. So we had the more toilet paper than like any, but like, I think we're still using it. Right. So when they announced that like there was this toilet paper shortage and nobody had toilet paper, I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. So I said to the kids, we're going to email, we have an email list for everybody in the neighborhood. And I said, why don't we email everybody and say like, hey, we'll leave the garage door open. And at that point, I knew enough to know some of these people may get actually really sick. And who's going to help them if everybody's scared to call on anybody because they're being told you'd be selfish if you contaminated somebody else. So I kind of went out on a limb a little bit and I said, hey, we've got all this toilet paper and my husband and I are both healthy. We're not you know, I didn't say we're not scared because that probably would have been the wrong wordage, but I worded it nicely, which was basically like, if anybody needs to go to the hospital or they're worried, we should probably have a way of helping each other. And it turned into this amazing email thread that could probably be turned into like a book or a short story or something fun because all of the, the a lot of the people I think in the community who are older, who were feeling really isolated and probably genuinely nervous about what they were to do, you know, they weren't supposed to go to the supermarket except in the morning. And, you know, they don't know, they don't necessarily have Instacart, right? So it, it's a massive inconvenience, if not terrifying for them. Um, and they came up with these really cool ideas and all they cared about was the kids in the neighborhood. So they were, they responded with this idea, like this one woman who's probably like 95 made a um, scavenger hunt of things that were blooming in her yard. And she was like, the kids could come by and they can find the, you know, this tree that's about to pop and this one. And if we all did this, this could take up the kids afternoon and they learn a lot. And like, I mean, it was so wonderful. Somebody else was talking about another time when things shut down, which I never got, I never figured out what, like, was that like the <laughs> the flu of 1918 it may have been right i like i don't know but that they said everybody would run around with candles or something and like play flat and they were like but now they could just play flashlight tag where you're tagging the child with the lights so they don't have to get too close to each other i mean there were all these like really creative ideas that came out of that um but it was something where you know you kind of realize if we don't start communicating and offering to help no one's going to communicate and everybody's going to feel alone and actually, maybe if this isn't so scary, rather than just telling people like, you know, we read the science and we know this is bullshit and we're not scared and you shouldn't be either, to just sort of open the door. And then like somebody comes by, they get toilet paper and I open the door and I say, hey, how are you? Are you okay with a hug? You know, and they say like, yes or no. And and you move from there. It's like, take it with things that you can do today that don't overwhelm people, that aren't scary, that you can kind of 
slowly crack that door open. I mean, we had people at Halloween who built like shoots out of their like second story window to send the candy down. So they weren't near the kids, but you know what? I bet that was fun for them to do. So I'm not going to call them crazy. I'm going to say like, that was a really cool workaround and the kids loved it. Right. But I, I, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff like that where the polarization is not by accident. It's a way of maintaining the order because if you get consensus amongst people that the leadership is wrong, you're going to have new leadership pretty fast. And that was controlled perfectly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would argue, you know, the, the problem is, is that every four years, the leadership is wrong. And when are we finally going to say, hey, we need to change the way that we choose these? I mean, the term that I've used a lot recently is we have a um, demistocracy. It's not democracy because you have to be a millionaire and devoid of ethics to actually be successful in this game. So we, you know, we, we beat our chest talking about what an amazing, you know, political philosophy we, we subscribe to, but we don't. Because every four years, as an immigrant in the States, I hear the same thing, the lesser of two evils. Out of 330 million people, is that a successful you know, um, uh, organization or, or system if that's what you hear? No, we all could name 20 people who would be phenomenal in that position that we know damn well will never stand a chance of getting there at the moment. So while we, you know, the Trumps and the Bidens murder each other over two elderly fucking fruitcakes, you know, we're distracted from the fact like, hey, you know, as I say, we're standing in a turd factory and we're waiting for a cupcake to come through. It's never going to happen. You're going to keep getting turds until we change the way that we choose these people. Yeah, I would push back on that just a little bit because I think um, early in my reporting career, I covered Congress for PC World. So I was covering tech, which was fascinating, right? Because the private sector really wanted to come up with solutions for things and the government wanted to regulate things they didn't understand. So I got a great education in all of that. Um, and I think it's the lobbyists. I think it's we're not going to get a candidate that you or I would like in part because anybody you and I would like would never run. And anybody who runs becomes so compromised by the money that even if they start as somebody who would be wonderful and effective, it is near impossible to get around the influence of those lobbyists. I mean, when I was there, which was what, 2000, early 2000s, like 2003, four, five, that it was I mean, we called them crackberries, the blackberries that everybody had, because somebody would be on the floor arguing for a bill and the lobbyists aren't allowed on the floor. Right. So there's this old rule of if you served in Congress and then you become a lobbyist, there's a waiting period between that. Right. But once you do, you're always allowed back on the floor. So those are superpower positions because nobody else has access during a vote or during debate or whatever. The lobbyists can't get their hands in there. Well, if you hire the guy who was a Congress member, then you can because you can get them, you feed them the talking points. And with the Blackberries, it was like a shit show where people would just send the talking points in real time to the member. And I mean, they were writing the bills. They were not being written by staffers. They weren't, I mean, you know, for a while it was like, oh, members of Congress don't even know what's in this bill, but their staff has read it. <laughs> it was like, it's not even the staffers. It's just purely industry. And that is that's deep corruption on a level that is kind of like you got to burn it all down before you can 
and I'm not a January sixer, but like, you know, you gotta <laughs> really like sort of figure out re, you know, build a new model. And, you know, in an ideal world, you'd find somebody who was anti-lobbyists who had tons of private supporters, billionaires, right? Who weren't invested in their companies anymore. I mean, this is such a long shot that they would support the person because you cannot win if you don't have enough money. You just can't. Um, and I think the notion that that's going to happen, I mean, it's just, it's it's like whether it's uh, they're bad, you know, they're paying to back you or they're going after you by paying for the person running against you, not because they like that person, but because they like them better than they like you. That's awful. I mean, I, I look at this in state elections and I think it's so obvious and the press isn't writing about it at all. When you see this massive influx of money from out of state coming into local elections, what? Why is there a hundred million dollars from New York going into an Ohio election? That should be illegal. I, that's they don't have what did that what's their interest in local politics? It's not for the citizenry. There's a lot of stuff like that that I feel like I wish somebody in a like sort of civics class would break down because I don't I mean like I would get in arguments with like my father-in-law and stuff about like the you know Bob and I were dating at that point but like I would go to dinner over there and just be like oh my god you guys have no I like not to be rude he was a political science major he's a very smart educated man but like it was really clear that like he could not he thought I was like had a tinfoil hat on about how the lobbyists were influencing things and now I think there is a much better awareness of that stuff. But I don't think that the average American has any idea how that money influences. And it's both fear-based and proactive. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying with the lack of ethics. I mean, that's the point is that you are willing to have those handouts and you are allowing these companies, whether it's, you know, to pick one, you know, Monsanto, Pharma, you name a product that is murdering Americans in genocidal numbers and they are backhanding it, you know, the tobacco industry. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And until, like you said, I'm, I always use the term control, alt, delete. We need to start from the ground up, go back to the original document that this country was founded on, you know, then adapt it to 2023 and then raise it from, from the bottom up again and allow any potentially great leader to succeed, have caps on, you know, campaigns, go back to this is what I stand for rather than this is what the other person did last year. Did you know about that? Which is, you know, we have no idea what these fucking idiots even stand for because all they do is talk shit about each other. And then, you know, this is supposed to be the the pinnacle, the commander in chief. And our children are looking at this like this is this is the uh, this is the the pinnacle of human, you know, performance. This is how the the, the perfect person is behaving. Well, and then we wonder why there's selfishness and narcissism and all these things, because the people that are in the White House are complete, you know, narcissists and there's no kindness and compassion. They're divisive and everything that we teach our children not to do. These last few presidents have been exactly that. And, you know, it's, I was an ancient history major undergrad. And so I studied ancient history and then I really looked at revolutions outside of ancient history. And there's this very famous Roman character. I mean, now people are, you know, people will say he's mythical. He's, I believe he was real, who basically came in. His name was Cincinnatus, which is what Cincinnati is named after him. But he was a farmer and he was called to Rome and he went to Rome and he served and he put down the rebellion and he got everything back in order. And then he left and he went back to his field. And I think that's what we need. We need somebody who's not interested in any of this garbage, right? And it's not about power. 
but they're willing to play the game, get money, get into office and serve one term and be like, I'm changing. I'm no more executive orders, like make an executive order that we're not going to have any more executive orders. The president is focused on foreign policy, right? I have nothing to do with your college loans. That is not what the president does, right? Kind of restore some of those virtues and then be like, I'm out. I fixed the problem. I'm done. I'm moving on. And I, you know, I mean, that's, again, it's a pipe dream, but you'd have to have somebody who had the wherewithal to know I got to play this game and then I'm going to get in there and I'm going to fuck shit up so badly that the next guy can't come in and, you know, go back to what we had before. And I don't know that there's anybody who's that patriotic, you know what I mean? Who would be willing, they'd probably be murdered, I think. Right. I mean, like, so, but that, that's the only workable scenario is that somebody who could kind of co-opt the industry into believing that they were a player, get in there, do the right thing, and then be done. Fade into the sense, like probably, you know, end up being exiled or something <laughs> to some island somewhere. If it was following the Roman tradition, that's what would happen. <laughs> well, isn't that what the best leaders of the world do, though? You almost didn't realize they were part of it because they were so humble. They just pointed at the, the people that they served with as who was responsible in a positive way. You know what I mean? versus again you know just what beating your chest and talking about you know you you're an expert in everything that people talk about you know it's just it's crazy but anyway i, I want to get to the journalism because obviously the reason that we're challenging the norms is is you're doing the same thing you know in the uh the research space and then we'll get to, to crossfit as well talk to me about your journey into journalism and then when you came across um an inequity when it came to the research side especially when it comes to women yeah, so I think, you know, how I got to journalism is sort of like a long, tangled story. I, after college, worked at Fidelity Investments and was bored out of my mind. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Office Space, but um, it was a lot like that, where like I would go into my boss's office to tell her that I was going to quit. And she'd be like, you're a team player. We're Now you're the vice president of whatever. And it was like <laughs> ridiculous titles and more money and I had a very good friend from college who was working at Vogue and she was like, Emily, you are a reporter. Like you ask more questions than anybody. When my husband and I were dating, he nicknamed me the Riddler. He was like, do you ever stop asking questions? And I think my mom had always said to us, you ask questions to show people that you're interested, right? You have to listen carefully and then you ask a good question and it connects you to that person because they know you're interested. And so I had kind of grown up in this house that had a lot of debate and a lot of asking questions and getting through things. So my friend Katie was absolutely right. So I started working for a local newspaper that was a daily paper. And actually, and that's an embarrassing story because I emailed the editor and was like, I'm very smart. I graduated at the top of my class and I would really like to write for you. And he was like, do you have any writing samples? And I sent him like a 30 page history paper, which is like, I had no idea, but the absolute opposite of what an editor for a daily newspaper wants to see. Right. And so he, he was very polite and he kind of put me off and I kind of kept going back to him. And then 9-11 happened. And, you know, obviously there were some people who died who were in the plane from Boston and the hijackers had been here. And um, and so there was a funeral for one of the victims that he didn't have a reporter to cover. And so he called me and he said, do you want to go cover a funeral? And I was like, yes, I'll cover a funeral. <laughs> this is great. And I actually, when I was at 2020 in primetime, I sent him a thank you email and was just sort of like, you were so generous with me. Like I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And he pulled up the draft that I submitted for that story. 
And when I tell you it was awful, it was like I described the architecture of the church. I mean, I was like talking, like I, I was clearly trying to prove to him that I was smart rather than actually doing a good job on the story, but he was wonderful with me. Um, and I think I kind of got the bug. So I ended up quitting my job at Fidelity and I picked up like a waitressing bartending job because I was making nothing as a reporter and I still had to cover all my bills. So, um, and then that made me realize that when I was working for that local paper, I really wasn't getting edited, that I wasn't, I knew I wasn't the best reporter, but I also knew that I was in an environment where things were busy. And it was right at that time period, there were still classifieds and the internet wasn't as big of a problem as it is for journalism today. Um, but a lot of these local papers were starting to be bought up by corporations. And I think that's one of the big problems we have with the media today is that newspapers used to be family owned. And families were really happy with like a 23% profit margin. And when you start publicly trading anything, it becomes, you know, you have to do better every quarter. And the news isn't really designed to be that way. And so when you become, when you put it in the market and it's all about estimate, you know, what your estimate is on your returns and it, it go, you know, it's great, but it's not as high as you estimated. And then the stock goes down, you have to cut. And so these newsrooms hadn't at that point been decimated, but it was lurking. Um, and so I took some classes. Harvard has like an extension school that has great professors that you can take classes from, but it's sort of like a night school. And so I took a couple journalism classes because I was trying to figure out whether I should go back to school and get a master's in journalism or whether it would be better just to work. Um, and so I took those classes and loved it and had wonderful professors there who really did take an interest and, in, you know, edited the shit out of me and made me realize <laughs> how bad I was but also really encouraged me. Um, and so then I applied to Northwestern, got in, did that program, which was phenomenal. Um, met some really brilliant, amazing thinkers who were really dedicated to journalism. And I think there's one person now who's maybe two who are still in the field. I think everybody else has left, which is another sign of how bad things are. Um, and then I went to... I was trying to decide if I would work for the Wall Street Journal in India or go to Las Vegas, where my now husband was getting a master's in exercise physiology. And wait for it. I did not go to the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> I went <laughs> to Las Vegas. And it was really fun. I mean, it was I was there at a time when like business was exploding. Every like there were new buildings being put up, and I was a business reporter covering growth for them. Um, I had been in Washington covering tech, and so I was doing tech and growth. And I figured out that people were spending more money shopping than they were gambling, which I was the only female in the business department. And the publisher came running in and was like, you like clothes and stuff, right? And I was like, sure. And he was like, you want to launch a style section for the newspaper? And it was the biggest newspaper in the state. And I was still pretty you know, young. And so I was sort of like, I'm going to take this and run with it. And um, so I launched a style section for them. And I had a column that was called Vegas Girl, which was like hysterical, if you could ever find it. I think um, Sheldon Adelson bought that paper. And the first thing he did was destroy all the archives. So it's hard to find those stories. Really? Why? I think the paper had been very critical of him. Um, you know, he's like a billionaire and he owns a bunch of casinos. And so... He bought the paper when the paper started to suffer financially. And as, yeah, and that was the first thing he did. It's interesting. It's also, there's also sort of like a Roman thing to that, right? Um, but, and so then I got connected to Diane Sawyer, who loved my 
Silly Vegas Girl column. And she invited me to come to New York and I went and met her and she was amazing and gracious and recruited me to come work for 2020 in primetime. Um, and so I did that and that was awesome. I covered murder. Um, I did some complex health pieces there, but mostly they called me murder girl. That was my joke around or nickname around the building. Um, and I love that. And, you know, I mean, honestly, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, there's nobody that I've spent time with who I haven't learned something from. Right. And so I think this idea of coming at relationships or interactions with some sense of curiosity and genuinely being interested in somebody else served me really well in that role because that those were really competitive stories and the networks are vicious in terms of competition. And I think I always tried to be like polite to people. And I did a lot of media training that I'm sure I would have gotten fired for if the execs back at in New York knew what I was doing, but I didn't want anybody to agree to do an interview if they didn't know what they were getting themselves in for. And oftentimes I was there without a crew trying to line up who, you know, what the story was and who we needed to talk to. So I could say to them, like, you know, ask the, asshole at Dateline what stories he's done and how he portrayed the victim's family. And then ask me and I'll show you and you can pick which one you like better. And just remember, you don't have to talk about anything that you don't want to, and you can set terms. So you can say like, I know you're going to want to show like my, you know, wife's dead body, but I'd prefer you not. And if that becomes a term of the deal, like you got it, but now's your time to negotiate. And so I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I you know, kind of went through those hard times with. And I think that probably was a precursor to my interest in crisis management um, because those were all people who were going through like the absolute worst day of their lives. And even the murderers, I mean, this is where I get weird. They were normal people, right? They weren't animals. And it's kind of fascinating when you start really looking at lots of murder from the perspective of like, who, you know, did the person do it? Once you think they did, Why? And oftentimes it's like, there's all these variables that have to have happened. Like the stars aligned, right? Like the, it's the husband murders the wife and the, he's just been laid off from his job and she's already mad that he's not making more money. And, you know, like the mother-in-law calls and tells him that he's like a son of a bitch and that it's, you know, his wife should be married to somebody better. And then, you know, he, like his mistress says she's going to break up with him. I mean, it's like all these things that happen on the same day, right? And you're like, what? what is the likelihood that this person's ever going to kill somebody again? Probably zero, right? Now, that's not to say that like they shouldn't be punished and that, but like the idea that they're really like a threat to society, no. And you talk to somebody who's been through something like that and you will learn a lot about yourself. Um, and so that was fascinating. And then I was sort of recruited through a mutual, like a, a friend of mine um, who knew me really well to help run a relationship management business that was based in the United States and in Kuwait. Um, and that was fascinating work where we were basically trying to match up American interests with big conglomerates and families in the Middle East, mostly the GCC region. Um, and so that sort of took me out of journalism, obviously, but it put me, I, I don't, you know, a lot of times people will say to me, like, how did you, how have you oscillated so much back and forth between entrepreneurial stuff and, you know, business and reporting? Like, they seem like totally different skills. And I actually think they're very similar. Like, I think you have to be kind of resourceful and scrappy. You have to be able to work with lots of different kinds of people. You have to figure out, like, what is the end goal or the product? And how do you explain it to a marketplace or a group of people? Um that 
may not be as interested, but it will serve them well, right? Or that there's some complexity to it that you need to be able to educate them on. Um, so, and then that basically led to launching a, um, we were still doing that relationship stuff, but there was a Middle East conglomerate that wanted to own more stuff here. So there was sort of a back and forth. I don't know how much you want me to get into this, but like the GCC region, you have to be, it's sort of like a franchise model. And so you have to have partners on the ground. And there were a lot of American interests that wanted to get in there. And there were a lot of Middle Eastern interests that wanted American stuff, but they didn't want to work. I mean, there was a lot of obviously like political stuff about, you know, working together and what that entailed. But there were also were really interesting things like just the amount of money that's over there and what can be done with it. And American brands and entities trying to be protective of their IP and brand while really having to surrender a lot of that autonomy in order to be in that region because there would be no enforcement of any of the rules, right? So it was a lot of vetting people to try to figure out, um, is this the right partnership or not? And are they both in it for the right reasons where there will be longevity to the relationship? And so through that process, I also did a lot of training at Harvard Law School. So I did their program on negotiation and they they have a year-long mediation program that I did, which was great because a lot of the stuff, you know, you can imagine I'm like my early 30s at that point, maybe mid 30s. My timeline's off probably, but um, I was talking to a lot of Arab men who had never worked with a woman before, let alone an American blonde, right? Who's just like, boobs and full of energy and all the good stuff that they're not used to. There was a lot of time, like I would smoke cigarettes, which I can't even imagine now, just like for hours trying to like make them feel like I was legit and I wasn't a prostitute and I was there to negotiate this big deal and that they could either work with me or they could not get the deal done. And I'm still very close with a lot of people over there through those relationships, which was great. Um, So then we had a company called Prep Cosmetics that was really interesting and fun where we were going into college towns and opening like a mini Sephora. So lots of different brands. Um, And the big thing that really came out of that was that we launched a lot of how-to videos, which now on YouTube, one of the most popular things on YouTube is like how to make up stuff, which we really, there was nobody doing that when we launched that. Um, Then there was a a company that I (laughs) helped to start and ran for a while that was a gay app for men looking to meet each other using geolocation had just come out. Um, And so that was a cool way of sort of helping people find each other when they were close to each other. Um, And then there were a bunch of women's health centers that I launched um, that, you know, my husband had initially invested in about, I think we had seven. And then he started working for Peter Atiyah um, as the head of research for him. And so I took over three of them and realized that there was a lot of stuff happening in the space where middle-aged women were coming in and they were looking for like sort of, they would be looking to lose 20 pounds, but really what they were looking for was a, like a, a life they no longer had. Right. So I developed a curriculum for them um, where every month we sort of studied and talked on the floor and had a lot of readings and whatnot. Um, different women's health issues that focused on middle age. So things like how your heart is different and how you're more likely to get osteoporosis and what are the signs and how women experience vertigo, but it's actually like holes in your bones. And so you should probably get a DEXA scan. And that really made me think about how many women didn't know this stuff um, because we probably had, 
150, 300, 450 members. And they were all ravenous for this information. And so I started looking at sex differences in medicine and I realized like women's bodies are really different. I mean, this is part of the issue that I have with some of the transgender stuff. My feeling across the board is that like you could sleep with whoever you want, right? As long as they're not a child. And um, I don't care. We can talk about it. We cannot talk about it. It's not going to offend me. You can do all like whoever I believe so strongly in individual rights that it's really hard for somebody to come to me and say like, you know, this person's doing this thing and it's bothering me or like, get over yourself. What does it have to do with you? There is something fundamentally problematic because of the fight that I feel like women have had to go through to have medical research done specifically on their bodies to be having people confused about whether somebody is a man or a woman. So if we all agree that the endocrine system is really what dictates health, right? All of our hormones and our hormones are very, very different. I mean, a lot of people don't know that testosterone is the predominant hormone in women, but it's not the same ratio as it is to men. And, um, you know, so like to, but I had that business and then I launched the empowered health podcast. I used to always say like women get different diseases. We present different symptoms and we're treated the same. And then it's surprising to people that the treatments don't work. Right. So heart disease is the leading cause of death for women. Well, wait a minute. Like, how are you diagnosing heart disease and why are women getting heart disease? And nobody can answer those questions. All those questions really go back to, you know, studies that have been done on men. So I remember learning that it was like in 2000 that med students started doing cadavers, female cadavers. So prior to that, the assumption was like, you don't need to do, a, you know, like any kind of thorough examination of a female body. You just assume it's the same as men. And like 60 Minutes did this amazing piece where they were starting to talk about things like um, Ambien, the sleep medication, that it would affect women for like two to three days. Whereas it would affect men for the period that it was supposed to affect you while you're supposed to be sleeping. And they interviewed all these researchers who were like, oh yeah, we just assume that women are the same as men, except they've got those pesky hormones, right? So like, they're kind of annoying to study. And it's like, whoa, the hormones are the whole deal, right? Um, And so that was really fun and really interesting because we're actually in a time period now where there's a lot of women who are scientists and doctors who have made a way for themselves where they're successful enough that they can demand money for their own research projects. And they're demanding it for studies on women. And when I tell you that's profound, it's like, it's a travesty, but it's also something that is so long overdue. Like, I don't know how many women have died because they were treated like they were having a heart attack that was identical to a man. And that's not right. And it's the same, like two thirds of Alzheimer's patients are women. Why? People used to say, oh, because women live longer, but they're not getting Alzheimer's when they're older than the average man. They're getting it in their 60s, right? Why? Well, it has to do with the decline of estrogen, right? And all kinds of other things that we don't understand. Um, And so that was great. And then I think COVID kind of hit. And um, oh, and I was reporting. I mean, so like once I launched the podcast, I also sort of got back into reporting. So I had been freelancing for the Boston Globe. And I did a piece on C-sections for the New York Times. And I had a column in Boston Magazine. So I was doing all of that as a freelancer um, after my kids were born. And then, um, the so the podcast was just like sort of a piece of that portfolio that I was building because I could really control my schedule, the freelancing stuff and have little kids at home. Um, and then COVID hit and... Um, I was working on this long form piece about the NSCA case and CrossFit. 
And I had gotten to know Greg Glassman really well over the last couple of years because we were both sort of obsessed with the bad science. You know, I was focusing on women in some regard, but I was really interested in why were why had we assumed that women were the same and what are the private interests in that? And as an investigative reporter, you know, follow the money is like the standard. And I think I had um, been really confused about or curious about why there wasn't more money being driven by these female interests. Like, it seems like we couldn't you develop a whole new class of drugs that are just for women? Like, why isn't that an impetus? And I was starting to realize that it was becoming that, but that it was really taking women in the medical space to, to drive it in a way that is always kind of funny, right? Because you think the marketplace would recognize that that's a massive void that could be filled. Um, and we, I had been looking at nutrition research for a long time. When I was working way back, maybe in like when I was living in Vegas, um, Bob was getting a master's in exercise physiology and he had become really obsessed with Gary Taubes' work. And so he and Gary ended up sort of following or becoming mentor, mentee in a way. And Bob said to me, "And like, you've got to look at this stuff. And I think at that point it was like the soft science of dietary fat, maybe Gary had just come out with in the New York Times. And he was like, if this is right, this is like the biggest story you could ever cover because it's like all the dietary guidelines are wrong. And I was like, there's no way that's right. And so I started looking at it and I had so much overtime at the paper in Vegas because I launched the style section and wrote like 90% of it, but was kind of craving something deeper to sink my teeth into at that stage. And so we worked on a documentary, which I've never done anything with. And Greg and I have talked a little bit about maybe doing something with it, where we looked at the dietary guidelines and how those came about. And I was actually the last person to interview Mark Hegstead, who was the architect um, of the you know dietary guidelines and had a lot to say about cholesterol and fat in a nursing home. And I think I was the last person to interview him alive. And he admitted to me that he, they made a lot of mistakes and that he did not foresee that things were going to go the way that they did. Um, which is a great interview. But there were a lot of interviews actually for that project that we did that we should do something with because just as a sort of historical record, they're really important. Um, so because of that, I think Greg and I had this initial phone conversation in part because I was looking at Tom Seafried's work on cancer. So his whole thing is that cancer is a metabolic disease and that actually there are these really simple um, experiments that are called the nuclear transfer experiments. And if you move the nucleus of a cancer cell to a healthy cell, it does not develop cancer. But if you move the mitochondria from a cancer cell to a healthy cell, it does, which completely debunks, overrules, should call into question wherever you fall on that spectrum, the conventional wisdom on cancer being a genetic disease. Um, and so I had spent a lot of time with Tom and was really interested in his work and why he wasn't getting more attention for what he had found, which was really he, his protocol is he puts people on a fasting ketogenic diet, gives them hyperbaric oxygen. Now he's not a doctor, so he's in a lab. So this is his protocol that doctors are now following and having profound results with. Um, and then he puts them on a drug that can controls for glutamine and um, they have, you know, reversed glioblastoma, triple negative breast cancer, like crazy stuff that you're kind of like, eh, this cannot be right. Um, but he, I think he is right. And he was a speaker at the conference we just had for broken science and he's phenomenal. And he's become a good friend of mine. Um, but he, at the end of that interview basically said to me, 
Or I said to him, you know, what would it take to solve this? Like, it seems like you kind of have it figured out and you're in this like weird little office at Boston College. And I'm like, you know, this kind of is blowing my mind. And I think he said he needed $3 million. And I was like, why? Like, that shouldn't be so hard. Why hasn't that happened yet? And he basically was like, I'm overworked. Like, I'm doing the work. I'm not a fundraiser. I don't know how to do that kind of stuff. But this guy, Greg Glassman, gave me some money. And I was like, the CrossFit guy gave you the cancer guy in the weird little office money? Like, how? what is that about? And so I emailed like info at CrossFit and said, I just talked to Tom Seafried and I'd really love to talk to Greg if he's up for an interview. And it was like 30 seconds later, my phone rang and there were like kids screaming in the background. And, you know, like Greg was like, excuse me, I have my whole family's here, but I just, I love that you talked to Tom and he's amazing and he's definitely on to something and I'd love to talk to you more about it. So we talked for a couple hours and it's funny because that conversation was an interview, right? So I recorded the whole thing and I go back and listen to it now and I'm like, we were so cute, right? Like comparing notes <laughs> on like who we knew and what we thought and all this stuff. Um, but that really formed a very kind of like close friendship alliance between him and I about, you know, sort of fucked up science and like, how is this possible? And a fascination with, you know, how people are so easily misled and then how that snowballs into something that becomes dogma that you can't really untangle very easily. Um, and then, so I was working on a, I'm jumping around a little bit, but then I, this is now a couple years later, started working on this story about the NSCA case, which was a big lawsuit that there were three lawsuits that Greg and CrossFit were involved in because the NSCA, which is the main competition to CrossFit, was um, trying to make CrossFit training illegal, punishment of one year in prison or several thousand dollars. And that was, there were local state bills around the country that were, you know, if, Somebody hadn't tipped CrossFit off, they would have passed. Um, and that licensure stuff really stemmed from the fact that CrossFit, I mean, Harvard Business School has said that CrossFit was the fastest growing business in world history. And the NSCA recognized it as a threat because they were preaching no sugar or low sugar. And the NSCA is backed by Coke and Pepsi and the American Beverage Association. And I'm sure that there's a backroom handshake agreement that says that they won't talk about nutrition. So if you get an NSCA certification or an ACSM certification, which are both under the same sort of umbrella in terms of their donors, um, you agree that you will not give any nutrition advice, which if you look at things like the Move More campaign, right, or these other things, it's putting the onus on the individual to exercise their way out of a bad diet, which we know doesn't work, right? So if you're fat, it's because you're lazy and you're not moving enough, but you can have as much Coke as you want. And um, I think Greg's messaging around getting off sugar and nutrition being the base of the CrossFit pyramid was obviously hugely threatening as more and more CrossFit boxes were opening up and millions of people were doing it and finding getting off sugar was like the best thing they'd ever done in their lives. Um, so that then led to... Um, there was also this peer-reviewed journal article that came out as a part of this sort of war, right? So the NSCA is run by a guy named William Kramer, or was at the time. He also was the editor of the Journal on Strength and Conditioning, which was the preeminent sports exercise physiology peer-reviewed, like sort of medical grade journal. Um, and they had done a study 
which they had sort of laid the groundwork for a couple of years earlier, um, testing out military stuff. The paper was called the Champs Paper, and that was an opinion piece. And I, but it really, if you look at it, it looks like it's a peer review piece. And I think they were testing the waters with that Champ Paper. Um, but then they go to this article that's in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning, and they publish a study that was done out of an Ohio box where participants, you know, signed up fresh to CrossFit. They did a program and then they came back and were tested again. And the study found that they increased in sort of like all of the good metrics you'd want to see, VO2 max improved, body fat went down. I mean, it was definitely like wonderful for CrossFit in the sense that the efficacy of the methodology works. Um, But then there was this whole thing about how CrossFit causes injuries and the risk of injuries would should trump the effectiveness of the programming. And when that came out, Greg says that he really recognized right then and there that that was absolutely fabricated data because nobody had dropped out. So there were these participants who went all the way through and did great. And then there was this cohort that got injured, but there wasn't any cohort of people who said like, yeah, I'm out because this is too hard or I didn't think I was going to have to work. And you're telling me that I actually like have to do burpees and I don't want to do that. And he knew from his experience that like there's, you've always got people who drop out. And if there were that many injuries from this one box, it's unlikely that that guy would have been in business for as long as he was. Um, And so they started calling around and they figured out that actually it was a blinded study, meaning that when the participants came in, the researchers didn't know their names, they didn't have their contact information, nothing. So when the people didn't show up for the final evaluation and assessment, they had no way of calling them. They had no way of saying like, oh, did your kid get sick or were you injured in this program, right? They took measurements and metrics, the first evaluation and the last, and that was it. So where did this injury stuff come from? And so through these three different court cases, they were able to basically get discovery on all these documents. And they were able to figure out that the editor, now remember, he's connected to the NSCA, right? So he's the editor of this journal. He's also the head of this main competition of CrossFit, said to the researchers, there's no injury data here. And they wrote back, there are no injuries. And he wrote them back, there must be injuries. I'm not publishing this if there aren't injuries. And they wrote back and said like, well, how are we supposed to come up with injuries? There aren't any injuries. And he wrote back and he sent like, a. have seen some of these emails are off the charts absurd. And he says something like, um, well, go on YouTube, put in CrossFit on YouTube. Look at the things that these people are doing. There's no way nobody got hurt. So he's telling them like, don't look at what your study participants found look at this practice, surely you must have miscalculated. That back and forth happens several times until the researchers come back and say, oh, lo and behold, all these people who didn't show up for their final evaluation were actually injured. And he publishes it. Now, that's what really led to every headline that any of us have seen or like any friend who's like, oh, you do CrossFit? Like that's super dangerous. That's where that comes from. Because everybody in the media sees this preeminent reviewed journal and they assume that must be true. Right. And plenty of them have probably seen CrossFitters on YouTube or whatever and think like, that's wild. I could never do that. So it fits with some sort of, again, like that visual idea of, you know, reinforcing a narrative. Um, And so it's all over. I mean, like, you know, the New York Times wrote CrossFit kills like it went wildfire. And interestingly, and you go through all these court records or the lawsuit records, what you find is that they were tracking all of that. So it is the most cited journal article in that journal of any article they've ever written. 
But more importantly, they had like PR people essentially tracking everywhere that that story landed, knowing that it was fabricated. So shortly before Greg sold the business, a federal judge called that case the biggest case of scientific misconduct and fraud that she had seen in her, I can't remember, it was 25 or 35 years on the bench. But basically for her whole career, she'd seen tons of scientific misconduct and that was the worst. Um, So that case was decided. The judge had declared that they had committed scientific misconduct and fraud and it was in the stages of deciding what the damages should be. So what is CrossFit owed for all of this harm to its brand, right? So they had, the judge had ordered that they pay all of CrossFit's legal fees. And then they were in this process of deciding damages, which is when Greg gets canceled. So I am writing this big story for, you know, like about this court case and about how the science was misused or science as a term was misused. And that, you know, there's massive case of scientific misconduct and fraud and interesting, right, that the media hadn't been following any of this. And Greg's called a racist for Floyd 19, which we can get into what that really meant. Um, And I knew Greg wasn't a racist and I had spent enough time with him to know that he'd actually done probably more for the African-American community. And I would say actually just disadvantaged populations in general than any CEO I had ever spent time with. And I'd spent time with presidents and CEOs of companies like lots and lots. That's not a small amount of people that I'm comparing him to. And I just like kind of couldn't make heads or tails of it. And my editor said to me, you know, you're, you can't do the piece on the NSCA case without talking about how he's a racist. And I said to her, well, he's not a racist and I'm not giving up a word of this piece to indulge this like ridiculous fanfare over him being a racist, assuming that it would kind of like just blow over at that point. And then it didn't. And I said to her, what if I wrote a piece about how he wasn't a racist? And she was like, well, you could do that, but then we cannot run your long form NSCA piece because it'll look like you're biased. And I had become like kind of infuriated with things like that, that felt like if the goal or the purpose is to give voice to the voiceless and truth to power, right? And all these great virtues of journalism, um, what are we doing? Like no one's fact checking anything. Everybody's running this story about how he's a racist and he's not just like they had run this story about how CrossFit's dangerous and it wasn't right. It's And there were a lot of examples like that. I had been recruited by the Washington Post to do health stories and they basically didn't like any of my pitches because they thought I was biased, but I was actually reporting on like, you know, cures or solutions to things that would come from lifestyle. So I was, I was kind of getting to the point where I was really feeling fed up with the pushback that I was getting. And at that point, I'd been one of the you know youngest producers at ABC 2020 in primetime. I'd written for major newspapers. I had columns. I mean, I should have really been able to sort of like call the shots in terms of what I wanted to do. And people would have been excited about it. And instead, I felt like I was sort of being recruited to do these things. But then when I wanted to get into telling the story that I had found, it didn't fit with some narrative. And I'd never experienced that before. So people had often said to me like, oh, well, the advertisers decide everything. And it was like, when I was at 2020, we never, I didn't know anything about the advertisers. Nobody ever came to us and said like, oh, you can't do that because we have this big budget or this big account with so-and-so. We were kept very separate. I don't think that's, you know, I don't, I can't speak to whether that's true or not anymore. I think through the COVID stuff, it's become clear that money has certainly infiltrated the media and is has had a massive impact on um, objective objectivity there. I don't know whether it's just that people are so young now and untrained 
that they're easier to take advantage of in that way versus there's actually like a push forward narrative. This is what you have to tell. I think PR people are incredibly convincing. And if you take a young reporter out to dinner and you tell them that you've got the cure to cancer, they're going to believe you, right? I mean, like they may not know enough to know how to check your study, right? Or talk to other people. And they don't have time because they're producing probably 10 times the amount of output that I was responsible for producing when I was a younger reporter. Um, so I know I'm talking a lot, but should I just... No, no, carry on. I mean, I'm listening okay. because, you know, what am I going to interject? You're leading me through the story. So I think, you know, the next piece of this is that Greg has a PR firm that they've hired or that maybe was just like on contract in the background for stuff. But, you know, he never really, like he never put out a press release about any of the great stuff he did. I don't think he even really kept track of it. I think the number of people who have told me stories about generous things that he's done or life-changing things that he's done for them and um, him not even really remembering them speaks volumes to the fact that like he just did nice things for people. And he would say to me, I just did them because it was the right thing to do and I could do it. But he did never follow up and expect anything back from any of them. Um, and I think the same was true with like, he wasn't going to have stand at a podium and tell people he wasn't a racist, right? Like he wasn't going to explain himself to people because like that sort of seemed artificial and that's not how he's, you know, incredibly authentic and in everything that he does. Um, and so he had called me and was really upset and was just sort of like, I don't know what to do. Like they're telling me to apologize and resign. Um, and, you know, like resign from the CEO position. He still owned 100% of the company, obviously. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I am not a PR person, but like, what the fuck? Like, you're not a racist. And I don't know what that solves, right? Because you still own 100% of the company. So they're just going to go for the company next. And I just believe that, like, you know, if I'm the journalist covering you and you come out and you say, I'm so sorry, I didn't meet, you know, I was offensive or whatever, I'm going to believe that's how you feel. And that's what I'm going to report. And I'm going to report you were a racist because you just apologized for being a racist, right? So I think I said to him, like, if somebody accused me of killing my children and I didn't, wouldn't say I'm so sorry that I hurt your feelings because you think that I killed my children. I would say I didn't fucking kill my kids, right? So we kind of had that back and forth. But I think, you know, what I've learned now from helping a lot of people who are in a crisis is there is really a part of your brain that shuts off and you can't think very far ahead. So you need to have people in your corner. And I think, you know, now I have people who just sort of keep me on retainer because they're worried that something's going to go wrong and they trust me enough that they know that they could call me if something happens. But I think there's something profound about knowing that you have people in your corner who can be calm and cool and, you know, really come up with a strategy for how to pull you through because it is tough when you feel like even the people who you thought had your back don't. And the world is upside down and this doesn't make any sense. And why would people be saying this about me? And I think on top of that, he had been so upset about the COVID policies that the government was putting out and could not believe that we were all falling in line with this stuff. I mean, he's a math guy, right? The math models didn't make sense. They were wrong. They were shown to be wrong. And everybody was just doubling down and doing it again. And it was so illogical. I think it was very difficult for his like highly logical and rational brain. And so you add to that this sort of personal strife of worrying that, you know, you're kind of being lynched, right? And he has little kids. And so he became really concerned about his wife, Maggie, and their children. And he, you know, 
I think eventually just got to the point when he decided to sell the company where he was like, I don't like, I, I can't do this. I just need to make sure that Mags and the kids are safe. And that was all, I mean, when he and I talked about goals, that was his only goal. He didn't even care about himself or his reputation at that point. But so he's getting this PR firm, giving him this advice. And I'm sort of pushing back while also acknowledging that I don't really know what I'm talking about. Right? It's like, I haven't worked in that field, but I've been on the other side of it. And I know how I would take that. And it got to the point where he resigned and he made Dave Castro the CEO and it didn't go away. It got worse. And, you know, then there were these allegations of a hostile workplace and sexual harassment. Um, and then there were allegations of sexual assault. And so I ended up feeling just sort of a moral obligation to jump in because I felt like it was bad for the media to be getting it so wrong that the trust in the media was already so eroded. And that if I had a sort of privileged position to know this person and know that this was factually inaccurate and that what he meant by Floyd 19 was actually the opposite of racist. He was calling out the IHME for being a racist organization and for doing quarantine, which he had found this, you know, retrospective journal article that had said, looking at the plague through um, H1N1 and had determined that anytime you use quarantine, it's a tool of segregation that will disproportionately impact whatever the you know minority group is in a population. And he cited that. He used Floyd 19, and then he put that quote, a quote from that journal article underneath. Now, of course, nobody put that quote into Google. So they didn't read the article, and they didn't know the context, and they saw a white 60-something-year-old man saying Floyd 19, and they just assumed that he was racist. Um, I asked him what he meant, right? And what he meant was that these people just came out and said that they're going to start modeling racism as a public health crisis. These are the people who just quarantined us. That's going to have a disproportionately negative impact on African-Americans and all minority populations. Why in the world would we trust these people with modeling racism when they've just proven to us that what they've done is racist and no one's calling them out on it, right? And and I thought that was sort of beautiful, right? I mean, there's something really like, again, like so logical about, oh, these people are just jumping on this bandwagon and no one's yet to call them out on their the influence that they've had over these policies that are going to be so damaging. Um, and so I sort of resigned from journalism in that moment. And that story never ran um, and jumped in the trenches to help Greg. And I think, you know, the training that I did with the work in the Middle East and the um, Harvard Law School stuff certainly informed my ability to go into a crisis and help manage it. And, you know, having covered murder and know how high stakes some of these reporters feel this story is to them also allowed me to sort of communicate with them as a peer rather than an outsider. So the reporter at the New York Times, I just said to her, like, you have to forgive me because I was a reporter yesterday and I'm doing this because I know that you have the story wrong, but I don't expect you to believe me. I'm not going to let this become a he said, she said. So I need you to give me some information that you're going to publish in your story that I can challenge factually with verifiable information. And so to Greg's credit, probably because he knew me well enough at that point, I said to him, you're going to have to give me access to everything, like everything in your life. I need to know everybody you ever hooked up with. I need to have all your credit card transactions. I need to have all your photographs. Like I need everything and really put it together as though I was an investigative reporter covering him. Right. And so that allowed me to then give her what I would call evidence that she could check because you can rip forensics off of a photograph and find out location and, and date and time and credit card transactions that put him in different locations 
at different times than a lot of these these more nefarious allegations um, were claiming. There were people who were, you know, I mean, like Savannah and I have talked about this publicly, but like he's accused of shit and he's in Antarctica, right? Like for that, like half the year, like it's, it's preposterous. Some of the stuff was just crazy, but like the reporters hadn't been told that Greg's ex-wife had put an offer in to buy the company and she was a source. You know, there was a lot of stuff where it was just sort of like, you know, with me too. And with the racial stuff that came out of uh, George Floyd being murdered and the pushback on the police, right? This is all kind of coming together in this perfect storm where people are just, I think they've been locked in their houses, right? Like they're they're looking, again, it's like maybe a sense of purpose. They're looking for something to latch onto that's going to give them a sense of belonging to a community, you know, fighting for justice. And it's, bonkers. I mean, it's like, it's all so misled. And so, I mean, now I have helped executives who have been, had board members who have tried to kick them off the board for like me too stuff. And it's like, the woman doesn't exist, right? Like it's, it's so obviously this new kind of blackmail. Um, And I feel like, you know, we do have issues with race in this country and we do have issues with sexual violence and what a disservice this kind of garbage does to the actual victims. And I mean, I live in a very wealthy suburb outside of Boston and um, my dog was a puppy and I would walk her like five miles a day through all this. And I would see people with, I mean, I like start shaking, but like signs like, oh, defund the police with their like $4 million house. And I'd be like, I hope you get robbed tonight, right? Like I, I, I really do. And I mean, that sounds awful, but it's, what are you talking about? Like, this is some sort of virtue signaling Maybe like you're, it makes me think like you're racist, right? Because like, if you're going to that length to make these overtures about something that is clearly not in your interest, right? That's so fatally flawed. It must be because you have some sort of weird guilt about something, right? And you're overcompensating because you can't be rational because you're worried that someone's going to look at you. I mean, the whole cancel culture thing I've equated for a long time now with a stoning where, you know, in these sort of like biblical or fairy tale situations, you see somebody starts, you know, throwing a rock at somebody and somebody else walks by and they look at the person and they, the person feels threatened. And so they start throwing a stone and soon enough, the whole village is throwing stones at somebody and nobody knows why, but they just don't want the stones being thrown at them. And that's, that, that sort of felt like that moment. And, um, and Greg was the target. And I was like, I would rather have people throw stones at me then see this happen. And I can't sit on the sideline and report on it. That feels like such a pussy move, right? Sorry for my language. But I think it is, it's just, it's unconscionable. And then to see all these people who knew him well, who, you know, even in some cases left voicemails that I've heard say, I know you're not a racist. I know you're not this person, but for my business, I need to you know, come out on Instagram and tell the world that I don't stand by you. And it breaks my heart to do it, but I hope you can understand why. And it's like, nope. And he will forgive anybody, but I will not. Right. And I think that's part of our bond is that he can relax about things because he knows that I will be a pit bull in his corner. And, and I think that's a nice relationship, right? Because um, I can get wound up about stuff and he can <laughs> do the work that he needs to do. And it works out well. And I think, um, you know, I don't know how much more you want to talk about that crisis, but that, that was a, it was, it was fascinating. Um, it taught me more about people 
than probably any other situation that I've been in and has certainly informed how I help people who are in that kind of situation now. And I think it's gone directly to a lot of the stuff that Greg and I are working on now. So we're business partners on this Broken Science Initiative. Um, and the goal is ultimately to have, you know, in the near future, a school curriculum that will probably be for about eighth graders. We're working with charter schools. We're building some alliances with really interesting places. Greg's going to be at Hillsdale um, College in Michigan, which will be open to the public. I can give you, I don't know when this will air, but I can give you the information about that. Um, and we have some like amazing people that we're working with to sort of get these ideas out there that science is broken and that actually science is supposed to be this purity that's about objectivity. And the distortion of science is emblematic of this larger distortion in our culture where we no longer seem to understand that some things are opinion, some things aren't, right? And that it's not all up to your perspective or your emotional wherewithal, that we do have things that we all agree to abide by and respect and respect each other. And that doesn't mean respecting, you know, the the smallest population of people. It means respecting everybody the same way. And I think these ideas have been hijacked. And when you look at the science, and with COVID, I mean, I think this project is not about COVID, but I think COVID became kind of like a perfect testing site for us because people are talking about science now in a way that they never were before, right? And people are interested in it, but it also brought to life the intersection of industry, politics, researchers in this magical trifecta of corruption. And Greg likes to joke that there's different kinds of corruption. And I love this. Like you have a corrupted file, right? You also have corruption where people are corrupted and their their means and motive are corrupted. And what we're seeing is actually like all of those definitions mixed into one where it, and it's leading into all of these cultural phenomena. And so, um, you know, I think after he sold the business and was somewhat heartbroken and I think really, really isolated because he couldn't kind of wrap his head around why more people hadn't been willing to stand up for him. Um, you know, he, they went to Jackson hole first and living in Jackson Hole, I would call him and I'd be like, what are you doing? And he'd be like, there's this moose in my backyard. And I was like, oh, fuck's sake. Greg's like, <laughs> his best friend is a moose. Like, we're really, we got to <laughs> get him out of there. So well, the moose can't call you a racist though. So that's probably why. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> and like, you don't want to fuck with a moose, right? Like they're, they're serious and they were everywhere in his backyard. But there was one moose who would like come and visit him, which was kind of cute. But I think, you know, the, it gave him bandwidth that he would never have had while he was also running CrossFit um, to really go back and kind of look at some of these ideas and the philosophy of science in particular. So there's a philosopher named David Stove, who we both believe is brilliant and was never recognized um, for his ideas. He's no longer alive. Um, he's from Australia and his stuff is hard to read. And so the first time I tried to read it, I was like, I don't get this. And I like it it's really hard to, you know, dissect what he's trying to say. And is he trying to be funny or am I like totally missing that? The second time I read it, he realized he's hysterical and he's a very logical thinker. And he attacks Karl Popper in a way that I had never seen anybody. I mean, Karl Popper was always sort of like the, you know, the end all be all in the philosophy of science world. And he points out like he was wrong. He was actually wrong about a lot of stuff. But when he denied induction, 
he set us on this path where, you know, Popper had this thing where he said that um, science, the difference between science and non-science is falsification. You have to be able to falsify your work, which to the lay person sounds totally reasonable, right? You have to be critical. You have to always be skeptical, right? These are first principle ideas like Feynman put forward. But actually, he's wrong. Because if you just concentrate on falsifiability, you're not going to ever move forward. So we go back to the friend analogy that I gave you earlier. If you and I become friends and I'm just constantly looking for like why you shouldn't be my friend, the friendship is not going to evolve, right? What I need to do is I need to have some probabilistic trust idea that there is always going to be uncertainty and that actually uncertainty is probably far more important to look at in situations than certainty. Certainty is something that's really never there. But uncertainty is there and you can measure it. And so we really think that Karl Popper led us down this path that has now led to things like p-values. So this guy, Carl Fisher, came up with p-values. And, you know, to give him credit, which he doesn't deserve a lot of credit for, but like he was looking at large sets of data and he was trying to find relationships between them. So correlation, right? We have this massive misnomer in our culture and certainly in reporting that correlation and causation are the same and they're not, right? They're actually completely not related at all. And um, and I think, you know, Fisher does have this whole thing about how p-value should never be used in medicine. And now they're the gold standard. You cannot get published in a peer-reviewed medical journal, let alone a high-impact journal, if you don't have p-values and you don't show that they're significant. Why? There's this guy who we are like absolutely obsessed with named Gerd Gigerenzer, who we just talked to, who's in Germany. And he has a great paper, which I can send you, that's all about the ritual of p-values. And it's like, it is, it's a ritual. Like it doesn't have any, it's like a religious thing that we've all dumped a lot of meaning into, but on its own, it doesn't do any of the things that we're prescribing it does, right? And it has led, we think, in large part to this, you know, what we call the replication crisis, which is where most research findings cannot be replicated. And that's a massive problem in medicine, but it's actually something that we're seeing in other things. Like we thought it was really just in medicine. And then over the last few years, we've realized that like physics is actually going through their own kind of crisis where they have all these like string theory is a great example of this. They have all these beautiful theories, right? And they actually use this language that's like very visual. So it's like, symmetrical and beautiful. And what does that mean? Like that's pretty subjective to your opinion and you can't test any of these things. So they're all theories and people are like, well, it's true. And it's like, well, how do you know? You've not done an experiment. (laughs) How do you know that it's true? And so, um, and you know, I could get into all of that. I feel like there's, you know, one other part that might be interesting to your audience. There's this guy, they're not going to find much on because I can't find much on him, but I am desperately trying and I will write something about him. His name is Richard Price. And there's something called Bayes' theorem, which was this guy you know, named Bayes who came up with this idea, which is now this notion of probability theory that Greg and I believe holds a lot of the keys to the way that we should be solving these problems. And it has to do with taking prior information. And it also has to do with whether you're looking at a hypothesis, testing a hypothesis or you're testing data, right? So Bayes has become kind of popular in the last you know, let's say 20 years, because it's a lot of what is behind AI stuff. And so that's a that's an area that's recognized. And there's a great book that's called The Theory That Wouldn't Die that traces the history of Bayes. And what's interesting is that it seems like when the shit hits the fan, people will turn to Bayes. But otherwise, they, they do this sort of frequentist approach, which is really looking at just the data. 
And you can't really make much out of that other than, you know, the correlated, correlated ideas. And, um, but there was this guy named Richard Price. And this is kind of a shout out in case anybody out there knows anything about Richard Price. And I had heard about him before. But when I read about him in this context, basically what he does is Bayes dies. His theorem would have died with him, but his family gave it to this guy, Richard Price, who's a minister in England and in London. And um, and basically Richard Price works on it for two years, refines it and gets it to a point where he can turn it into the Royal College and they accept it. Now we all have Bayes' theorem. Okay, that's kind of cool. But why do I know this guy? He was an advisor to the founding fathers. So Ben Franklin, John Quincy Adams went and visited him several times. They all wrote letters back and forth. He helped with the Declaration of Independence. He was offered a job in the U.S. government and turned it down. And because remember, I told you I studied revolutions in college, right? So this is now all sort of coming back to me in this kind of crazy way. He also was fundamental in the French Revolution. So there's something about this man that connects probability theory with really the rights of the individual, which becomes so fundamental in both of those revolutions. He's advising the founding fathers and the you know architects of the French Revolution, and he's been doing all this math <laughs> to get Bayes' theorem right. So that's sort of where I am on the broken. I'm like I'm very obsessed with that. Greg is less interested in all of that, but I feel like the truth is the history for me is so important to understanding the context for all of these things. And Greg is a math genius and I am not. And so like he can take the math and I'll take the history and hopefully we'll sort of like divide and conquer and develop this amazing curriculum. So we just had the Broken Science Initiative launch event um, in Arizona, which we had, you know, space for 200 people and we sold out and it was great. And we had some really wonderful speakers that were philosophers and mathematicians and then we had um, Tom Seafried, the cancer researcher, and Malcolm Kendrick, who has done a, a tremendous work looking at statins and how statins are, you know, not the end-all be-all and could be more risk than help. Um, and so my goal in putting those that panel together or the speakers together was to give people this sort of philosoph philosophical outlook and then tangible because everybody knows somebody who's died of cancer and everybody knows somebody who's on a statin. And so like if the science behind those things is as bad as those two speakers say it is, we all need to spend some time looking at the philosophy of science and how we've gotten this wrong and how we can reverse course. Now, Greg would say, we're not going to fix the problem. He likes to tell me that all the time. We're not going to fix this. It's too bad. But I think that's how he felt when he started CrossFit. And so we're kind of taking the same approach, which is that like, this is for anybody. Anybody who's interested can read this stuff. We're going to help by supplying lots of really cool media and resources to showcase this in ways that, you know, I say anybody from like my kids to my dad should be able to watch it and get something out of um, or read it. And, and then it's kind of up to you, right? So it's the same thing. Like here are the tools, here's the methodology. Now you go and you use it how you see you can. Um, so that's, that's the story. I don't know if I just like talked for two hours. <laughs> no, no, it was brilliant. There's two, two things I want to pull out. Um, the first part with what happened to Greg? I got into CrossFit when 2006, so I, I like to refer to before it was cool with a lot of people. Um, and uh, 
started off as, then i think uh somewhat but i wasn't i wasn't like super embedded either so i wasn't like invested i wasn't you know doing all the certs and i wasn't there at the games and these things so i was more of a kind of satellite just using it to be a better firefighter it was that simple it was a fellow firefighter that introduced to me um when i moved back east i ended up just doing it on my own in a ymca for a long time getting the f- most hilarious looks from all these people doing their regular workouts but i saw how good it was i saw injuries you know i saw when when we as coaches myself included were inexperienced and we weren't um as well versed in some of the movements as we should have been and we weren't as good at working with the personalities that walk through the door to maybe temper some of the i want to go from zero to 100 mentality as the games got more popular so you know i saw all of it the good the bad the ugly but i saw the amazing things it was doing i saw the international element like you said from you know hour and a half using it to to get kids you know off the streets and 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 help people get through addiction in hawaii and i mean south africa and all these places around the world so when i saw you know people want to burn down the the, the church as it were i was disgusted because it was kind of like you talked about if you have this cancel culture or this me too and everyone's fucking offended about everything and everyone was you know abused then the real victims that are in there get lost in the white noise the real people who are actually victims of racism not the the entitled poor me you know you don't know what's like being this color or this gender when we have you know a beautifully diverse country and that same kind of representation in fire service leadership and, you know, presidents and all these different things. But the real victims, that they were lost by that. And, and then conversely, it's the same thing. I have had people on here and I've had people complain, oh, you had this person and they said this thing. Yeah, because I didn't say this was the Angels podcast where everyone comes on who's virtuous and has never done anything wrong in their life. So that's the other thing too, this facade that the moment you say something that doesn't align with your way of thinking, you cancel everything they've done. That is the perfect way of dumbing down a nation and then making them vulnerable enough to divide them. So from the CrossFit and Greg's perspective. And then now I have these conversations with you and, you know, I want to give a shout out to Sean Rocket and George Ryan, um, you know, some of these other people, these men and women that I respect. Yeah. yeah, that I respect because I know who they are and I know they walk the walk in their own fields and I know they personally know Greg in this case. And I ask people and I get the story, you know, the story, this, these accounts of this is what we saw, this is what's happened. And then hopefully one day, you know, Greg will come on here and we had to have that conversation as well. A, a small part, because that is not, you know, what he's done. What he's done is revolutionize, well, I would say, health in this country. So that's that's the one kind of response to the Greg story is that I, my opinion didn't change. I sat back, I waited, just like you said, I did the same thing with the Ovaldi shooting. Okay, was there misinformation, you know, six months later from all these different people? No, there was cowardice in certain areas and those officers should be held responsible, 100%. With the other side of it, I agree 100% with the science because one of the most nauseating things that I have in the fire service is talking about the work week. A lot of our men and women work 56-hour weeks before because of short staffing. Now they're getting what's called mandatory, so they're working 80 hours that week. And I will get people look me in the eye and say, because I talk about the the... What I think the standard should be is what's called a, a 24-72. It should be a 42-hour work week for our men and women that run into burning buildings, run towards gunfire, get up in the middle of the night when everyone's sleeping. And they're like, oh, but yeah, but can you can you show me the research how a 42-hour work week is better than 56? 
I'm like, when did you lose your fucking mind? You honestly want me to go in a lab and test why two full work days in a in a in a profession where people don't sleep and lives are at stake is better. Really, you can't even get your head around that concept. So this is the problem. I love that whole phrase, don't wait for science to prove what you already know. We've forgotten mm-hmm. about what we already know. And this, you know, this double blind, that's the standard. No, I disagree. There are certain areas where, yes, scientific testing is great. There are some some drugs out there that through science have been developed that are incredible that I used in my box as a paramedic. But there are so many that are doing so much harm that are supposedly backed by science. You talked about Alzheimer's. A lot of the people now in the wellness profession are saying that's type 3 diabetes. That's due to sugar. Heart disease. Oh, it's irreversible. No, it's not. Watch Forks Over Knives. Watch all these great successes that are being had just changing the diet. I believe firmly as well with cancer that that is largely environmental and that so many of these men and women and children that we've lost were preventable as well. And these were all science back. Oh, no, our science is we blast them with radiation and chemo. And then fingers crossed, hope they don't die. That's that's our fucking scientific response. So I couldn't agree more on the distortion because science has a place, you know, and these studies have a place. But what we herald as science, and no better example than the last two years, where coming from the world of science, I'm told to believe a totally different science that I was raised on through school, which is, for example, microorganisms don't just suddenly drop off six feet from someone's mouth. That you know, <laughs> you know, and that that I have to believe this new fictional science now. So it's I find this conversation so so exciting because ultimately we do have to reverse engineer to the very nucleus of our beliefs and what so many of us believe is science and irrefutable, absolutely isn't. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. One of the most I guess, validating and disturbing conversations that Greg and I have had since we, you know, sort of started working on this project was with some friends who are Stanford professors who have been totally maligned through COVID, right? So you might be able to guess who they are. And um, and they're friends. I mean, I've helped them. I'm interested in their, you know, work going forward. I think they're absolutely right about everything that they've said and done. They said to Greg and I, This is profound because this is the first time in history that the government has maligned scientists for being scientists. And Greg and I kind of looked at each other and we're at this fancy dinner, right? And it's just small, you know, it's just us and then like them and two other people. And I'm like, you know, we can both sort of rebut quickly and not always be so polite in the moment. But Greg and we looked at each other and I don't remember whether it was him or I, but we were like, oh no, that's absolutely not right. Like this has been going on in nutrition and health for a long time. And I think we're really lucky. He and I were turned on to all of that 20 years ago, right? Because we have this depth of knowledge into how that all got corrupted and exactly why and where. And Greg's firsthand experience with the peer review thing, I mean, that's like kind of all you need to know, right? But me as a reporter, even sort of seeing how I couldn't cover stories or like things were getting funny and it didn't make sense or seeing how the government was getting money from lobbyists. Like these are all pieces of this puzzle. And what we realized was that this is the first time it's happened to them. Right. And so it's the first time that they're awakened to this idea that science is being maligned 
or that the name science is being maligned by the government, right? But this is actually really, really well established and entrenched. It, and and COVID was like maybe the worst expression of it in the freedoms that were taken away from us. But to your point, like there's so many things, there's so many of these chronic illnesses that can be treated, certainly prevented with a healthy lifestyle, right? That are not taught. We still don't have the guidelines right. And so that to me is also removing freedom because when you remove the ability for somebody to make good decisions for themselves, because you're the authority and you're telling them what to eat. I, I have that um, Instagram account. It's the CrossFit book and people sometimes come after me on the nutrition stuff. And I had somebody really, and I, I like, I just ended up being like, oh, they're a troll. So I'm not going to indulge this too far, but they were sort of saying like, you say the government is like telling me what to eat. Like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you not know that like if you're in a coma in the hospital or the ICU, you're getting the dietary guidelines. Like that's the ratio that you're being fed. If you're in a public school and you can't afford food, that's what you're getting. So yeah, the government is, and if you go to a health class, that's what they tell you. If you go to a registered dietitian, that's what they're forced to tell you. Well, right? so which, how many of the local organic farms are getting government subsidies to keep them growing? How many health foods and, and gyms and outside exercise area are being bolstered because of the importance of nutrition and health? And, you know, I would argue the opposite. You're getting lobbyists from fast food companies and diet, you know, soda companies that are infiltrating I mean, our children's schools. Yeah. If you're interested in that, the seed oils are profound in that, you know, they're likely more carcinogenic than sugar. And they are a massive part of the farm bill. So there's a very clear connection on those things. Yeah, because um, I always say to people, you know, there's that one group that looks down their nose at people who aren't in good, you know, health. And all you got to do is just wake up and exercise and have a salad. And what's wrong with you people? And you think about, you know, go to go to downtown L.A., look around. You know, what are on the corners? How many parks are available? You are also a product of your environment. And you can't just blame an individual for not having the David Goggins ownership to get out and run an ultra marathon and eat some grass on the way. That's just not how life works. You create an environment for people to thrive or you create an environment for people to fail. And at 70% obese or overweight, clearly, it's not just about ownership. And I think to add to that, this notion that this is self-induced right? Is so it's the shame thing again. It's lacking in humility on such a level. I remember um, when Bob, my husband was studying this stuff and helping Gary with good calories, bad calories. So like a long time ago, and we were out somewhere and somebody made some awful comment about like, oh, she could afford to skip a couple meals. And Bob lost it. And he's like very quiet and like not somebody who loses it. But he was like, you know, I just hate it when people say that because that person is internally starving. They cannot access their fat stores and they're hungry all the time. And we're shaming them into thinking that like this is, oh, they must like it like this. And it's interesting because I think what you were talking about earlier with the during COVID, you know, shutting down the gyms and making all this shit food available. Right. And, um, you know, like wondering what was going to happen to obesity rates in this country. Like we don't know exactly what we're doing. And then, you know, putting really morbidly obese people on the cover of magazines, right? Or that sort of whole movement. I, I haven't had time to look into it, but I am sure that that is a funded campaign by private interests, right? Because, and I'm all for, you know, everybody has different bodies and we all look different and we have to love who we are and we shouldn't all fit some 
you know, prescribed beauty narrative. But when you're talking about somebody who's really unhealthy, it changes the game. And and you can be beautiful because I actually don't, I think we all fall in love with each other's like vulnerabilities and things that are not aesthetic. And, you know, I always joke, like, if you can make me laugh, your like hotness goes up several points, right? Because like, that's the best. But when somebody is truly at risk for an early death, it's not about beauty. And we're confusing things by telling that, like trying to empower that body type. Because what we need to be doing is saying like, yeah, you're fucking gorgeous, but you're not healthy, right? I want you to be gorgeous and live a long life. So let's figure this out. And why that is so hard for people to understand. It's again, one of these things where I feel like there's some undercurrent of manipulation that has happened where we can't say those things and be taken seriously. Yeah, you're beautiful, but you're not healthy. And I love you and I want you to be healthy. Let's figure this out, right? If your A1C is low and you're big, right? And you, you know, I mean, like BMI might be a great example, right? Like you can be super muscular and have a high BMI, but you're healthy. So sure, there may be some metrics like that, but let's do that. Let's do a, you know, a bunch of blood tests and figure out how healthy you are. And if you're diabetic and, you know, you've got all these other issues going on, that's not, I don't want that for people that I love. Well, that's the thing, being a paramedic or in emergency medicine or wherever you are, we see the the raw truth. Like my face is the last one that a lot of people have seen, you know, and it's tragic. And I'm not talking about, you know, like my grandmother died and she was almost 105. That's there's, as sad as we were to lose her. How can you be sad about a lifespan like that? But when I, you know, again, can't resuscitate a 45-year-old who is obese, knowing damn well that had their life sent them down a different path, they would have another 50 years probably. Yeah. To not be disgusted and angry about that is what drives us. And then to bring in this fat shaming thing, no, you, like you said, I'm, you know, I'm built very differently than a linebacker, built very differently than, you know, a Filipino gymnast. You know, we're all different shapes and sizes. But like you said, there is healthy and there is unhealthy. And seeing what you can do with the human body is beautiful. Some of these athletes and, you know, these gymnasts and dancers and things. And to have that stolen on top of the lifespan should should anger everyone and drive them to making a healthier nation. On top of the fact that it's a national security crisis we're in, if 70% of us, you know, are really going to be economic. challenged. Yes, yeah, an, exactly. an economic crisis, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. So how do you how do you handle that? I'm going to turn the interview now on you. I'm done talking. You start a podcast no, and you like, write I mean, a book. It's sort of like with the the overdoses, right? It's like when you see something where there is a, a prevention strategy that was never implemented properly and it costs somebody's life. You said it makes you angry, but I would imagine it makes you more than that. I mean, it must, it motivates you to talk about these things, but how do you, I mean, how do you process that? Like, how do you go home at the end of the day? So, I mean, honestly, we're we're doing exactly the product of that. You know, when you spend 14 years as a firefighter seeing behind the curtain, I mean, truly seeing, I think one of the things that you don't hear from first responders, there's no Jocko Willink of the police or the fire service. You know, we just don't have those voices. But we have a true lens on how society is actually doing the gang violence, the addiction, the, you know, the obesity, all these things, you know, I mean, the number of people, any paramedic or, or firefighter listening will know this, the number of people that die 
way prematurely and then you're handed this like garbage bag full of meds and and the spouse can recite every single med the frequency the dose more than i could ever remember and this is the problem is you know you know the truth you see the truth with your own eyeballs you pull you know blankets over the truth you you know you call you know time of death about the truth so that is such a glaring reality that grabs you by your throat that most of us just continue to do the job in uniform and a few of us for whatever reason find an opportunity to try and be proactive at the same time i coach at uh, my crossfit gym as well so that's another thing i try and do to stop people ever getting in the back of an ambulance one day but the other thing is this I started the, the podcast because I was tired of going initially to firefighter funerals, burying my friends that served and never even got to experience that retirement out of out of uniform. And the same with the book. And I'm writing a book now that I hope one day will be made into a, a TV show or a film because every medium that I can saturate with these ideas, and it's not James Gearing monologuing, it's getting the experts of the world and removing the barriers, just saying, okay, it doesn't matter if you're here in, in Boston or you're in Nepal, you can access my conversation with Emily or you can, you know, listen to the audiobook or whatever it is. But that is just it. Is if we have two choices to do something or not to do something. And if you do something, you're part of a tapestry that's slowly growing more and more of these voices and you start linking arms with people that actually are part of this movement, one day there'll be a paradigm shift. But What's the alternative that you just don't do anything and you keep taking dead bodies to to hospitals? And I just refuse to do that. Well, I commend you. I think it's so important and it's also such a hard job. And so to not think about ways to, you know, solve for it or even though that's probably hugely frustrating because of the level of impact and the reaching the people. And I mean, I think, again, it's one of those ideas of like this is, you know, with obesity and diabetes, is it self-induced or not? There's also this notion of like, this is still the education that people are getting, right? I mean, I, even at the playground in my, you know, wealthy little suburb, I would see moms giving their kids like juice packets that had like 40 grams of sugar in it. You know, and it's like your two-year-old is not supposed to have more than 23 grams of sugar in the entire day. That's like giving them a vodka soda, right? I mean, that's like, no wonder there's fatty liver prevalence the way there is with kids. But th- those moms are not uneducated, right? They're not poor. They could access any food they want, and they still haven't gotten the message, right? And that's sort of shocking. I mean, maybe that's an elitist kind of view of like, they're, they should know better because they have the means to know better. But it's not getting out the way. And I think, you know, we haven't really talked about the new ownership of CrossFit, which is fine. We can. I can go into all kinds of conspiracy theories about all that stuff. But one thing that that does really bother me a lot, in addition to the fact that they settled that NSCA case, by the way, and we will never know what they settled for or what the terms were. Greg made a huge, huge deal out of the fact that he would never settle that because he wanted the public to know what had happened. I can check that box. We've covered that. But the other thing that really bothers me is that, you know, they're... They used to be so hardcore about going after people who posted comments or even on Twitter, right, said stuff about how like, oh, sugar's not that bad or I'm a vegan and like, you know, you guys are wrong. You shouldn't eat meat, whatever. And they would go after them viciously with research, right? 
And I try to do that on my CrossFit book page. And it's exhausting because it's just me, right? And it's not really my main job and all kinds of other things. But what's interesting is that on the CrossFit homepage, that's not happening at all, right? So if you look up, um, you know, probably a post from like three days ago, we could look up today. People are posting this stuff about how, oh, it's in moderation. You can have anything in moderation. Well, it kind of depends where you are on the spectrum, right? If you're super fit and healthy and you're working out all the time and you don't have any pre-diabetic indicators, maybe it's probably not your best option. Um, if you're a child, you're definitely laying the groundwork for a deranged metabolism down the road. So is that really what you want to feed your kids? I mean, even if in the most gentle, like we're welcoming, we want everybody to do CrossFit, we're not going to be rude or <laughs> abrasive to anybody, there's a correction that needs to happen because it's part of the education of what CrossFit is. So I, it's confusing to me as to why that has fallen off. And it really is like, come one, come all. Like you're a vegan who only eats Twinkies. We welcome you. I mean, and of course we welcome you, but I mean like we welcome you and you can keep eating that. Oh, no, 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 no. That would not fly. And it's upsetting to me because I think one of the things that, you know, to go back to that first, when I was interviewing Tom Seafried, the cancer researcher, and he told me about Greg, one of the pieces that I forgot to mention earlier was that he said to me, um, I'm not even that excited about this guy's money. I know he has a lot of money, but that's not why I like him. I like him because this is only going to get solved through a community approach. And that guy's got a big community and they don't take things at face value. And like Greg's dad re-ran all of Seafried's math before Greg gave him any money, right? And like they wanted to make sure that this was really solid research and it was what he was saying it was in his book. And, and that was taken seriously. And that was a point of pride, right? That we have this community and we're giving them solid information. And then they're going out and they're changing their communities by opening a box, right? And get a, get a bunch of moms in the box and then they're going to change the way their kids eat. And it has this obviously cyclical or trickle down kind of effect. And so to, to pull back on that is exponentially dangerous, right? And I don't know why they're doing it. I mean, like we could get into conspiracy theories about who actually bought the company, but my main point is that's really sad because, you know, like the mom of the playground doesn't know not to feed her kid this massive, you know, juice shot. But if she went to CrossFit, she would. And there's a lot of CrossFits. And those people go to parties and they stop drinking, you know, margaritas and they start drinking vodka sodas and people ask them why. And they say, oh, it turns out sugar's really bad. And can't you tell I've lost 20 pounds? That That's all one-on-one. -on -one. And when we have like the mothership not shouting it from the rooftops, it, it definitely erodes that one-on-one -on -one potential that exists already and future potential for sure, because it's just not as um, strong. And that's so important. I mean, you know, I think about you going and finding people who are dying and you think, how could I, you know, how, what can I do to change this? And my initial response is sort of thinking about the Dale King approach of like, well, you open a box and you get people in who are addicts and, you know, you, then they tell friends or they can be supportive to the next cohort of people who come in and they can say, I was there when, you know, I was fresh out too. And this is really hard, but you have to have people on the ground with that knowledge and awareness and kind of like sense of civic duty, right? Because people aren't making a lot of money doing any of this. The money's all on the other side of the aisle. 
And so, yeah, I mean, I think we all have a responsibility to, to preach that stuff. And sometimes we forget, but I think anybody who's in a position where they have any authority. Um, and I think, you know, I, like police officers and firefighters and healthcare workers are critical to this because people in communities listen to you all. Right. Um, and it's tragic when you have to deal with the outcome that doesn't come from that. So I think what you're doing is really amazing and so important as a way of getting information out to more people and spreading the word and acknowledging why this is actually, I mean, I, some, I've said to Greg recently about how, you know, my mom was a stay at home mom. And so me being a working mom and I work a lot and I try to, when my kids get home from school, I try to pretend that I don't work and then I put them to bed and I come back to work. So that's sort of my crazy schedule, but um, I was saying to him, we were talking about empowering people and how important it is that people feel a sense of agency around their lives so that they can make good decisions. And I said, you know, I wish people did that with motherhood, because if you think about, oh, I want to go out and I want to be a politician because I want to save lots of people or I want to whatever. And you look at what was your actual impact at the end of your life versus if every mom knew how impactful they were on their, you know, one to 10 children, they could literally change the world, right? And so it's something that I think we we do this with a lot of jobs, professions, roles in life. And maybe it goes back to that wisdom idea of like, you know, disempowering the elderly. It's sort of the same as like, I think like the police officer, the firefighter, the school nurse, and the, you know, local religious leaders, used to be the the guideposts in any small community. Now we've what? We've said like, oh, they don't, you know, they're bad. They're trying to kill people when they're not. Right? Oh, they're telling us, you know, they're just following the guidelines from the government. And actually maybe it's not good for us what they're telling us to do, or it's isolating or whatnot. You know, it's interesting. It's like, I haven't really thought this all the way through, so I'm not being very articulate. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that there are these incredibly powerful roles in our society that we have collectively disempowered, but that's, it's a farce. They are still the most powerful roles in our community. But when you tell people in those roles that they don't have any power, they don't have any impact, you will start to believe that. So it's like with this podcast, it's like reminding people you do have power. You have power to affect, let's see, how many people are you going to see today? Just by making them smile, Right. That's actually having a profound impact on your community, saying hi to somebody who maybe hasn't said hi to somebody all day. And I mean, when I was running my gyms, there was this, we had an open house once and there was this woman who was like 95. So it was like small group training. So there were like four people that would come work out at a time. And it was sort of CrossFit style though we didn't have barbells. And if I had said CrossFit, everybody would have freaked out. But that was a lot of me ripping off Greg's methodology in some ways, which I'm sure people are not going to like hearing, but that's the truth. Um, but you know, these middle-aged women, right. Who are all worried because they've had their knees replaced or they don't want to get injured. And they're, you know, also a little grumpy because they're highly neglected in their lives. And there was this older woman who was always just like this beam of sunshine and she'd come in at five in the morning. Right. So she was an early riser. She didn't work. I mean, she was quite old. And she, there was a woman in her group who was, um, mostly training because she was going to have her wedding. And they had this wonderful relationship, right? They're doing totally different workouts, but they're in the same group. And the times were very competitive. So if you had a 5 a.m. time, there would be a wait list because it could only be four people every half an hour. And um, 
And I remember we had this open house and this woman was talking to somebody who was a prospective member. And she said, oh, I come in at 5 a.m. And my kids were just home with their with their children. And we celebrated Christmas. And my son was just on me about why I was getting up at five in the morning. And I was standing there and sort of laughing. And she goes, but I told him, like, I have to see my girls. I see them three times a week. And sometimes that's the only time I see people. And I was like, oh, like she's this burst of sunshine and always happy when other people could be grumpy and difficult and whatever. And I love seeing her, but it had never occurred to me that we were supplying her, not just with exercise, but actually with human interaction in a way that she'd never had before or that she never had before, but that she wasn't getting regularly. Right. And I think there's little things like that, that we don't even take into consideration, but that are really important to sort of stop and remind yourself that like you do have an impact on people in your life. And if you're in a position where you're serving the public, you probably have a much more powerful role than anybody is telling you right now or that you even realize on your own. And I think that's why it's such a travesty what has been done to law enforcement and, you know, basically all civil servants at this point um, in terms of trying to take away that power or malign or, you know, I keep using that word malign, but it's like really sort of disrespect the work and the power that comes from that. But you know what, that does transfer power to some other group. So it's not unintentional. And I think we all know that, Um, but it's worth taking a second and just saying thank you to you and also just reflecting and reminding people who are listening that you have a lot of power and it's important and we're all counting on you. 